Bodies, uh, both online viewers and those here present at uh, ITU to the fifth Nordic Blockchain Summit event here in uh, Copenhagen. My name is Anas Høgh-Lissen and it is my pleasure and my privilege to be moderating this event today and I do feel quite honored, I must say, because I have been moderating at least a few of the earlier events, so I think that's a uh, a great honor to, to be invited back to, to moderate again here today, despite not knowing more than a tiny fraction about what you know about blockchain. But I'm trying to learn, uh, as I hope we are all. Anyway, um, before I go through the program, your host proper today is uh, Professor Roman Beck, head of the European uh, Blockchain Center. So before I go through the program and tell you much more uh, about what we'll be hearing today, I would like to um, have Roman give the formal welcome to the uh, Nordic Blockchain Summit. Please, Roman. Thanks a lot. Give him a warm round of applause. <coughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you all here under these kind of difficult times and also kind of uh, the visitors and viewers online. 
Uh, we are super privileged and happy that we have the fifth international blockchain school this year in 2022. Corona is not over, but we would like to say it's under management. And that allowed us to run a Nordic blockchain summit as well as a Nordic blockchain sum summer school and winter school, now a winter school edition, with fantastic partners and students from all over the world. Uh, it is a privilege to have you all here today and present to you the outcome of the blockchain uh, uh, winter school, as well as have fantastic keynote speakers and panelists to enlighten you a bit more about the dynamics and developments on blockchain, more precisely speaking, distributed ledger technologies, uh, specifically around the topic of sustainable decentralized finance. We are really happy to have uh, representatives from industry, from regulators, from central banks, from all kinds of different stakeholders of society here today to give their views, their insights on the latest developments on blockchain, specifically in sustainability and use of blockchain. And we'll also talk a bit about values and value creation and ultimately about ethics and implementing blockchain solutions in a way that is meeting ethical requirements and is protecting the digital sovereignty of Europe. Well, a lot of big, big words and kind of ambition. We are looking forward to the presentations and we hope you have an, an enlightening day. And with that said, I think we are a bit ahead of time, but if our keynote speakers will be online and I can see that Adi has already uh, fired up her slides, we can start with her presentation and I will be back to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Give uh, Roman uh, a hand, please. And you will hear much more from Professor Roman Beck uh, later. Um, before we go to the first keynote, I'll just run real quick through the program. Uh, we have, uh, to begin with, no fewer than three half-hour keynotes where we'll hear much more about uh, sustainability and EU initiatives. Uh, the presenters will all be joining us online, by the way. Uh, then uh, Roman will be back for a presentation on current research uh, at the European Blockchain Center and will, of course, <laughs> be present here uh, in the auditorium. And then at 3 o'clock we have a uh, coffee break uh, where you can network as well before we meet again at half past 3 for a panel debate on sustainable uh, decentralized finance. After the panel, uh, we have the uh, presentation of the student project finalists from this week's uh, Blockchain Winter School, and you'll get a chance to vote for your favorite project uh, before we'll be back for the award ceremony and uh, closing remarks at 10 to 5 with uh, Roman Beck as well. And uh, then for those of you physically here, I hope you'll join us uh, for the network, uh, networking reception at, at 5. That's um, 1,700 hours, I guess, in uh, U.S. military slash uh, European speak, um, but five o'clock right here in the auditorium. Uh, I would also like at this point to mention the uh, sponsors. Um, we have uh, case sponsors at Better Ocean, Algorand, National Aid Bank, National Bank, uh, PwC and Settlement, eToro and Januar. And then we have financial sponsors, which are Algorand, Maersk, Copenhagen, Fintech, and the PhD school at ITU. And I'd also like to uh, mention the, um, the partners for the uh, Blockchain School and Nordic Blockchain Summit. Um, the, it's uh, Copenhagen University, ITU of course, Copenhagen Business School, and the University of the Faroe Islands. So we have a busy schedule ahead, and I think we should get started right away. And just a uh, slide behind the scenes, we are three minutes uh, early, I hope, uh, 
no one has a problem with that, I'm sure uh, we'll be three minutes late when we're all finished uh, today, though I will do my very best uh, to keep us on schedule. So, our first keynote speaker is uh, Adi Wagenknecht, uh, Director of Ecosystems at Algorand Corporation, and uh, she will be talking about the future of sustainability in Web3. And as I mentioned, Adi is joining us on the uh, online uh, stream from somewhere else uh, that is not here. <laughs> and uh, the floor, Adi, or uh, should I say the screen is yours. Uh, I hope you're there and please everyone give her a warm round of applause. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for having me today. It's really a pleasure, and I'm um, really getting a lot of FOMO that I'm not there in person. So I appreciate you all listening to me on the screen, as I'm sure that we have interacted uh, so many times in the last few years. I'm going to give a talk kind of um, high level a little bit about my background, and then I want to jump into sort of some work and discussions around the consensus mechanisms and sustainability in addition to sort of some vertical buildouts and additional things that I'm interested in um, funding in both a diluted and non-diluted form. So once again, my name is Addie Wagenicht. I am the Director of Ecosystems and Technical Operations for the Algorand Foundation. Uh, we're a decentralized group that is based all over the world. I'm currently coming in from Austria in the middle of the Alps where it's snowing, so I'm hoping the connection is not too bad. Uh, we have teams in Singapore, Hong Kong, New York, uh, Dublin, Boston, LA, pretty much anywhere you can imagine, there's one of us there. So I, um, I like to give my talk by sort of starting a little bit about my background because our backgrounds tend to inform a lot of the decisions and verticals and spaces in which we are today. I went to undergrad in computer science, and then I did my master's in New York at an interdisciplinary program based out of New York University, which combined engineers with technologists, artists, uh, theater, and researchers in a, in a single field of study. So it was sort of like a think tank research group that was aggregated on a single floor in a WeWork style way before anyone knew what a WeWork was. Uh, I spent the preceding 10 years kind of crossing between the spaces of uh, activism, open source, cultural commons, and traditional art. I've exhibited in places like Museums Cortier in Wien, uh, or sorry, Vienna, for those of you who don't speak German, uh, the Istanbul Modern Whitechapel uh, Center Pompidou. I've collaborated with people like Chanel and Google, and I've done and had my major acquisitions and exhibitions at museums worldwide. But in addition to that, I've done a lot of work around open source hardware and software, specifically building out open source computer vision systems, um, looking at open source hardware, specifically fabrication and so on and so forth. And this was all sort of like two parallel tracks and then basically COVID hit and those two streams merged. So suddenly I was in a space where People were interested specifically within Web3, but more so NFTs, which if any of you have been paying attention, have probably heard about the big numbers because when people talk about NFTs, they typically, they typically talk about either the cost of a work and, or they talk about the environmental impact. So I'm just gonna leave it at that till I get to the next kind of um, area where I dig a little bit deeper into that. 
So with that in mind, I, I'm not totally sure everyone understands what a blockchain is all the time. So I like to give you like a 30 second crash course in the last basically um, 15 to 20 years of development. I basically think of blockchain, and for those of you that are not aware of this, it was invented in around 2008, about the same time I finished graduate school. And at a high level, a blockchain is essentially a, a list of records, often referred to as nodes. I like to refer to a blockchain, for those of you who are more in sort of a high-level business or non-technical background, as a network of other people's computers linked together by mathematical proofs. So there are two main um, proofs or consensus mechanisms in which these blockchains function for the, for the most part. One is called uh, proof of work, which you constantly see referred to as a POW and POS. Um, PO, POW typically use, utilizes mining, uh, which at a high level, mining costs a lot of electricity in the case of things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So it's not necessarily the most sustainable in the sense that um, fossil fuels is still one of the main sources of electricity. And fossil fuels, as you know, are utilized primarily through burning. But on the other hand, with other different consensus mechanisms, um, they don't require as much power. So nonetheless, there are a lot of blockchain startups I want to make you aware that aim to be more sustainable or position themselves to be sustainable. So Algorand is one, uh, which I'm affiliated with, obviously, but there are things like Tezos, Polkadot, so on and so forth, Cardano, Solano that all are more sustainable and sort of this like green analogy that they like to position themselves in. So there are a lot of chains out there which fall under a proof of stake. Like I just said, Algorand is typically a pure proof of stake, which enhances security essentially as the participants are uh, constantly selected at random. So I believe this, this encourages decentralization as it doesn't necessarily um, aid to a specific whale or entity who would have the most tokens, but it's actually truly looking at a randomization across the network. It's also super fast. We do about one algo can do around a thousand transactions, where a similar number on Ethereum, for example, would be somewhere between uh, five to $20,000, depending on the current usage of gas and the fees. And this is something to consider and keep in mind for later in this talk. Because as proof of stake chains in general typically have a higher blockchain speed or a block development speed, they also have these low costs due to the lightweight consensus mechanism. And with Algorand specifically, we split these transactions into two layers, which mean um, it's a chain that can be deployed in places where the average income is say $5 a day. And we have the potential to actually drive and encourage adoption as it removes this excess layer of bottlenecks uh, and complexity around financial inclusion or accessibility for people that don't necessarily make more than $5 a day. Um, building on top of that sort of $5 a day um, part that I just spoke to is that um, Sorry, I just heard someone talking in the crowd. Uh, building on top of the Web3, I'd like to define these things to a set of standards, which I'm referring to when I speak to the term or phrase Web3. I think there's a lot of misgeneralization around sort of what is Web3, but it is a, it's, just, it's defined as, I think, overall, a third generation of internet services for websites and applications that focuses specifically on machine-based understandings of data 
to provide data-driven and somatic webs in, a central, in, a, in addition to recognizing decentralization, which I often refer to and others do as well, is interoperability or cross-chain compatibility. The goal of that in Web3, in my opinion, is to essentially go from relying on one chain to a multiple chain universe. And I, I hope that eventually that's where we're headed but really powering sort of the next evolution by accelerating things like access and decentralization and access to information, both inside and outside of places where there may or may not be things like um, government control of the internet and so on and so forth. But I'm specifically interested uh, more often than not in emerging markets and providing infrastructure for pure proof of stake or proof of stake mechanisms and blockchain specifically, I think can possibly access and support wealth distribution in addition to educational opportunities across the globe, which ties back to what we're building ultimately at Algorand and the Algorand Foundation. So the Algorand Foundation is, fulfill, is really dedicated, I think, to fulfilling the global promise of blockchain technology by leveraging the protocols and open source software which we've developed. It was initially designed by Silvio McCauley, who was an MIT professor, who is also known for building out zero knowledge proofs, among other things. We have an all-star research team, which is actually what brought me here from an, another layer one. They're thinking about things like post-quantum computation and key storage. Um, homeographic encryption was written by one of them. Another one developed TLS. So they're really um, a rock star team of extremely established cryptographers who are thinking about the ways in which we can establish an open public and permissionless blockchain. And I think that together with that, we have a vision for a more open, inclusive and, and ecosystem to provide opportunities for everyone to essentially harness a truly borderless economy. Um, this is a quick kind of uh, diagram to give you a sense of actually the literal consumption footprints for different chains. So if we go back to crypto arts slash the NFT market, for example, uh, selling digital art on the blockchain has been something that's completely exploded in the last year and a half, two years. I think COVID has been sort of the perfect storm in the sense that traditional, traditional established artists have gone from being able to easily travel to fairs and exhibitions, having works exhibited in places without having to think about masks and social distancing and testing to the sort of new world that we're in now where everything is um, triple checked and double checked and you need certain vaccinations and certain tests and everything to get through. And to some sense, the traditional art market came to a complete halt when um, COVID hit. So to give you a frame of reference, I think I went from having 30 exhibitions in um, 2020 lined up to one. And then that one was eventually postponed. And every artist that I've spoken to, whether they were within or familiar with digital art or not, um, had a similar experience and a similar kind of reality check. So when COVID locked all of us into our houses, artists or not, we realized that we had to put our work out in a different way and a lot of artists came to blockchain. And to some extent, I see NFTs as sort of the gateway in which crypto has created a more, I don't wanna say completely mass adoption, but a partial mass adoption or at least an awareness of crypto because people have 
made marketplaces and NFTs in places that are accessible. So when you utilize something like MetaMask or a wallet, which allows you to essentially buy crypto without having to go to exchange, you can use a credit card. This removes a step of and a level of complexity that was not possible otherwise. And when you look at sort of the market right now of NFTs, regardless of, of if you are interested in them as art, I think they have different value propositions. They'll be moving into things like real estate and music licensing. I've seen people start to utilize the blockchain as a ledger, which is beyond just the traditional sense of the ledger, but actually using it in place of having to go to a lawyer, for example. So it's validating um, legality of records or spaces in which you would normally have to go to a person to do that. But if we go back to the NFTs in the, in the context of art, um, the current market, I believe, is around 1 billion, and that excludes some of the mar largest marketplaces like OpenSea. And this has been something that has only happened in the last year and a half, for the most part. So selling work on blockchain is, can be technically challenging, but I think as these platforms have emerged, they have created these easy, seamlessly kind of sexy onboarding experiences for both artists and people that are crypto curious or want to get in on sort of the FOMO without actually having to go and buy something at Coinbase, but they can actually utilize these markets to then have their experience on the NFT slash crypto space. But unfortunately, because currently many of these major kind of NFT markets are proof of work designed, they're very inefficient and ecologically costly. So when you look at this chart, you can see that selling a single edition of our work on a proof of work exchange, for example, would have about a carbon footprint of starting of around 100, um, kilograms of CO2, which is equivalent to about a one hour flight, depending on the platform. Um, it can even reach a long haul flight, depending on the size of the file. Uh, selling addition of 100 works, for example, was recently computated by Kyle McDonald, another artist, where he found that the carbon footprint had was that of over um, 10 tons of CO2, which is more to give you kind of an actual real world metric would be more than the per capita annual footprint of someone in the EU including all the missions from industry and trade. In addition to this, I go back to the cost of the use for a user and how important it is for this to create any sort of market domination or accessibility. If the transaction on a proof of work chain like Ethereum, for example, costs three to $500 and you make $5, you won't be able to necessarily onboard the majority of people outside of the EU. Middle East and Americas. And so this is a major roadblock, in my opinion, especially coming across and the more I work with places like Kenya and teams in Nigeria and parts of South America, there's a fundamental misunderstanding that I keep coming across. It's just that when you say blockchain, what they think that means is Ethereum and Bitcoin without realizing that we have established solid affordable alternatives. And so part of what I've started to do is try to bring awareness to people that there are proof of stake alternatives and that they have a viable kind of thriving ecosystem. This slide is out of date, um, but to give you a sense of sort of where we are in terms of our growth, this is from last year where you can see we've had um, around 9 million users and now that's almost tripled or quadrupled. Um, this is sort of our core metrics. Again, I think this isn't specific maybe to Algorand, but I think this growth is reflective in a lot of proof of work chains, or sorry, proof of stake chains. So I want to believe that there's a sea change possibly that's happening. We've developed these sort of clear metrics in terms of like active accounts, developer engagement, where we've measured things like GitHub, GitHub contributions, 
active repo, <laughs> active repo cloning uh, and downloads of sample code. So these are sort of performance oriented, but you can also see things, for example, when myself and a few other developers defined the ARC parameters for the NFT or the non-fungible tokens on Algorands to allow developers to build out under certain conventions and parameter um, definitions. You can see we had massive growth and that was only since uh, we launched those in September of 2021. We've had about 4,000% even since I've made this slide. So I'm hoping that um, with all of that information, I can kind of dive into really quickly a few things in terms of funding and opportunities. If you're in the space where you're interested in blockchain, you have great ideas, or you see a gap in the ecosystem that you feel that you can um, build out or um, deploy into, chances are that's still possible because the market is so young and we've developed um, so quickly that there's a lot of growth and opportunity still there. And I always try to um, support and bring awareness into the space about ways that you can get that um, support fiscally in addition to other things. So one of the things that I, I've looked into and I've been spending a lot of the last year and a half on is essentially building out sort of support and success for ecosystems across the Web3 vertical, specifically um, by injecting high value or interesting projects. So I see the rapid growth of, of the Algorand ecosystem specifically, but Web3 in general, as being um, led by having not only enforced accountability metrics, but better brand awareness. So as Web3 starts to propagate across sort of verticals outside of just traditional FinTech, a traditional trad tech, uh, the crypto kind of uh, niche and goes out into spaces like, um, you know, stable coins or climate, sorry, planet watch, where you're seeing things like real world metrics being deployed on blockchain where they have a tangible result that actually affects something beyond themselves. I think that that's when people will start to become more accepting of it. So we created, or I created with my team kind of a funding roadmap, essentially supporting projects from the inception of the idea through the entire vertical into their exit or some sort of series acquisitions rounds. So when you look at the slide, you can see here, um, if you go from hacks to VC, essentially people will come into the space. And I think that this is true, not only for Algorand, but other chains as well, um, through hacks, through bounties. Uh, from there you get grants and grants is a really important value add for people who are starting businesses or they're looking into building out D apps or any sort of marketplaces because they allow you to get non-diluted funding, which essentially means free cash. Uh, the value of this is that you get the money tied to typically milestones around your build out or your business idea to build that out um, on some chain, multiple chains, a single chain, which then allows you to build out that MVP or minimal viable product, which then can usually get you into an accelerator or even get you VC funding, depending on how solid the idea is. And so one of the things my team has been working a lot on is getting that non-diluted grant funding out and then working with accelerators to essentially match you to those and then build out from there um, our deal flows with our VC pipelines and allow you to essentially get to series A or series B um, through having very minimal sort of dilution in, in your ideas and your projects. The other thing that I've been quite um, 
prescriptive on is a DeFi fund, similar model as the grants, just a different name. It's basically a fund that we launched in September 21 to strategically support and develop uh, DeFi applications with around uh, 300 million USD at the time. The initial ask was for bridges and oracles with the belief that um, a bridge essentially is that just that it, it's, it allows you to go from one chain to the other. So they're not siloed, but there's a connection. Oracles is a way to um, grasp and get real world data in real time onto the blockchain. And we felt that with those two base layers, we would be able to then propagate and build out other things like assets and synthetic assets and native stable coins and DEXs and MMAs and DAOs and all these other sort of things. So right now um, we're launching the DeFi fund around ETH Denver, and we're gonna have another specific call for things around DAOs and assets specifically, as well as secondary markets for things like NFTs. And then to give you a sense of um, projects that we've supported, this is sort of a gantlet of things. So we've done everything from um, real world support of ASAs and smart contracts and integrating those into an application which allows you to build like a sandbox to um, a SAP connector to Planet Watch, which is actually a physical hardware device which allows you to monitor air quality, um, storing that data onto the blockchain and then distributing a Planet token which allows you to have that be traded or sold on the secondary market. But in addition to that, it's also a utility token for people who own the sensors. So the longer you run that sensor, the more planet tokens you'll get. And then obviously those planet tokens can be sold or held or staked um, for additional value. So um, I also like to give out my contact information. This is my email. And then you can reach me on Twitter or Instagram under where's Addy. I'm always here to look at decks or offer support, either technical business development or whatever for teams that are interested in starting to build out on Web3 but don't know where to start. I also have a lot of connections to VCs and deal flows. So if you are building or in the process of building, you're looking for capital with or without dilution, I always encourage people to reach out to me. And I think I have a few minutes for questions if there's any, otherwise I really appreciate you all um, looking at another screen again and spending some of your Friday with me. Thank you very much, uh, Eddie. And uh, we do indeed have uh, a few minutes for questions before we have a uh, uh, switch over to the next online presentation. Um, so if there are any here who would like to ask Eddie a question, I'm sure we can get a microphone, uh, not too close to you or rather close to you, but uh, held by a person that's not too close to you. So any questions? Uh, we have one here all the way in the back. If you could please raise your hand up there, a bit of uh, exercise and then you will have to return here for the second question. And Ooh, double microphoning. That's, that's advanced. Good thinking. So please uh, tell us uh, your name and, and where you're from and then ask your question, please. Yeah, hi, my name is uh, Lasse. I'm from uh, an architectural firm called Moving Spaces that work with um, urban planning. And my question is, um, you could say, how do you onboard, you could say, <laughs> Uh, the normal people in the design process. So one thing is having, you could say, developers. How do you get, you could say, all the other people on board where all the things that you talk about is not native 
Eddie, um, if I, yep, go ahead. If I understand your question correctly, I think you were asking about onboarding non-native users to the blockchain. As, as I understood it, uh, the question was people who aren't uh, in this ecosystem of talking about blockchain and DeFi and, and everything else, how do you onboard those people in the development uh, so, so they can get their input as well? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. That's a difficult question. There's two ways that I've seen people do it successfully. One is that they actually integrate the blockchain in a way that people don't necessarily know or understand that that's what they're utilizing. So they use forms and structures and sort of UI UX experiences similar to Web2. And then they, from the back end only, integrate Web3. So they might introduce, for example, if it's a gaming play, um, they might introduce the gaming token on the blockchain versus it being just a token that has no secondary market value. So that when people are utilizing and playing the game, unless they sort of look into the tokenomics or what the purpose and utility of the token is, they would not necessarily know that it's on the blockchain. The other way that I've seen people get onboarded is through educational initiatives. So there's groups like the Rwanda Blockchain Institute, who I've been working with pretty heavily to essentially educate people on the ground with specific use cases that I think um, apply to them. So if you're a farmer, for example, of palm sugar, you may not be interested in um, a DEX or a Uniswap, but you would be interested in how you could take that kind of real world item and apply it to um, a secondary market or to get more money for your palm sugar than you would locally. So they sort of take things on a case by case basis and try to apply them to that specific person or that specific vertical's interest in a way that it adds um, a new value proposition to what they're doing and not necessarily by creating complexity, but actually simplifying what they're currently doing. So thinking about it through what is your problem and how can I solve this? And if blockchain is, is one of those tools that you're wanting to utilize, thinking about sort of the use cases or the case studies in which you could deploy blockchain as a solution. Thank you, Eddie. Um, I hope uh, that was a helpful answer. And I do believe we had a question here on the first row as well. So one more question for you, Eddie. Hello, Eddie. My name is Sudhanshu. I'm a master's student from Charles University in Prague. So as being an artist myself, I had kind of an art question related to Web 3.0. Do you think, how do you think curated, specifically curated exhibitions can find their place in Web 3 environments like metaverses? Do you think there's space for that or there's a potential for that? Um, can you repeat the question? Um, I just I'll, I'll, I'll try if I may. Um, uh, I didn't get your name, but uh, a fellow artist uh, asked the question, if you think there'll be a space for curated uh, exhibitions um, in, uh, in the metaverse, basically. Yeah, so there's actually curated exhibitions already happening. Um, there's a site called JPEG, which is run by a person named Marina out of Berlin, who's actually a curator who was quite established, and then she started working with Encrypto, and those two merged. Another one is Koenig Gallery in Berlin. 
they did a exhibition called The Artist Was Online in Decentraland, and this was March of last year, where the curators from that gallery, which is a physical, like, in-person gallery, moved the exhibition to Decentraland, which is a metaverse, and then curated the exhibition where they sold it both online and off, which I thought was quite an interesting way. But there's been exhibitions like Proof of Art, which was in Linz recently. Again, they did it where they set up a metaverse exhibition in addition to the real. Uh, with that being said, I think that's a good start, but there can be more interesting ways to inject curation. And I think it's necessary for a lot of people um, to experience and kind of understand what they're looking at and in relationship to other works that are available. So. For example, Foundation is a marketplace which is curated. I believe Nifty Gateway is very loosely curated. There's Aros, which was recently built out by a very established curator on Algorand. Um, and Tezos has done some of these things as well. We're bringing in artists as essentially curators to contextualize the work or, or understand why that is. Another really good example is Feral File, which was recently, I think in collaboration or partnership with Museum of Modern Art in New York, and they worked with the head curator there to essentially build up an NFT collection that was kind of bilateral in the sense that it was in the physical MoMA, but they also had works available online. So again, this is sort of like a starting point, but I think that it can be done probably better and more interesting once people start playing with it. Thank you very much, Eddie. Um, and I think we have to move on. So uh, please join me again in, uh, in giving a warm round of applause to Eddie Wagenknecht. Thank you very much for, for your participation. Now, um, I've been told that we need just a second or two to uh, switch to the next uh, video stream keynote. So this, this will be a good time for me to let you know that as you've just seen, uh, there will hopefully be uh, a few minutes for questions after the presentations today. And as you've seen, uh, we are doing it in a corona, uh, hopefully corona safe way with a microphone <laughs> on a long boom arm. Um, so please, when you listen to the next couple of keynotes and, and Roman's presentation later, please think of questions that you would like to ask. And as always, we welcome questions rather than comments. Comments are great for break, breaks and networking and reception time and talk amongst yourself, but lengthy comments um, here uh, while the, the event is running uh, can be counterproductive. That, that's a nice, uh, friendly way of saying that. And if you uh, go into long comments, as I'm doing right now, just to demonstrate uh, how, how not to do it, um, I will uh, kindly stop you with a friendly gesture and or uh, shouting into my microphone. It is uh, a discipline called uh, paddling in the broadcasting world where I, where I used to work. And that is, I, I, I know, I've, it's been several minutes ago that I was given the thumbs up that we're ready to go, but I'm just trying to uh, demonstrate uh, how to paddle. So. Uh, without further ado, uh, the second keynote, and we are joined by Caroline Cape, uh, who is a policy officer at the European Commission with a focus on blockchain and digital innovation. And Caroline will be talking about EU initiatives on blockchain, specifically highlighting sandbox activities going forward. So Caroline, welcome, and everyone, please give uh, Caroline a warm round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, um, thank you so much for um, the invitation. I think uh, the slide set should come up um, any moment, um, if I'm not mistaken. But um, thanks so much for the opportunity to join you today. Oh, it's a little bit of an echo. Um, I don't know if you hear that too in the room. No. Is there any way to address this? It's a little bit difficult to speak like this. Okay, it's better now. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, good. Well, um, again, thank you so much for um, having me today and giving me a chance to tell you um, a little bit um, about um, the EU initiatives on, on blockchain and um, some of the key pillars that are informing the EU blockchain strategy at this, um, at this moment in time. So, um, hang on, let me just uh, get up my clicker here. Okay, great. And it's, uh, okay, wonderful, good. So, um, yeah, um, so um, uh, as I mentioned there, we have different, uh, we have different EU initiatives um, that are focusing on, on, on blockchain and um, aim to reinforce um, a blockchain uh, ecosystem in Europe. Um, some, uh, one of the, the key elements, if you so want, um, of our of the EU's blockchain um, approach to spread uh, 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 I'm sorry strategy approach to blockchain um, is a joint political vision and what this means in plain terms is bringing together the member states um, particularly through what is called the European Blockchain Partnership um, which I will tell you more about in just a minute um, the European Blockchain Partnership was uh, launched um, a few years back. It includes all EU member states, um, as well as Liechtenstein and Norway, um, bringing together technical and governmental experts from, um, from these um, EBP, so European Blockchain Partnership member states, um, with, a, with a main goal and objective to develop um, and implement the European blockchain services infrastructure which I will tell you much more about in detail. Um, but in essence, just uh, very briefly, um, the EPSI, as we call it, the European Blockchain Services Infrastructure, we do love acronyms at the EU, so no surprise there, um, uh, aims to set up and develop um, and deploy uh, a pan-European blockchain services infrastructure to start with for public services but later also for private sector applications, um, possibly running on top of the infrastructure. Um, then um, what is also um, very um, important is to develop um, building um, global and European expertise on blockchain issues. Um, blockchain, like any other emerging technology, evolves uh, fast. Um, and um, you know, regulatory and legal questions arise with possibly existing regulations, not um, having had in mind years ago um, what technology can do. Um, so there are many um, policy, regulatory, and legal issues um, that arise. Um, and so in this context, the European um, Commission um, is, um, is, is hosting an initiative which is called UBOC, the European Blockchain Observatory and Forum. I will also tell you more about this in a bit. Um, which pretty much brings together global, um, global experts, um, technical, um, uh, governmental academic experts, really, 
um, uh, in Europe, um, from Europe and globally to, um, to run workshops, uh, develop, um, uh, prepare and publish thematic reports, um, which are very interesting and um, uh, an incredible resource, uh, which I will again mention more about later. Then um, as a third element of the EU's um, uh, blockchain strategy, if you want, um, is uh, called the INAPFA, the International, um, uh, the International Association of Trusted Blockchain Applications, right? I mean, what does this mean in, in, clear, in clear language? Um, it is pretty much bringing in the voice of the industry and of startups and bringing together regulators and startups and innovators in a regulatory dialogue, um, both from Europe, but also globally. So um, INAPFA um, uh, is, um, is an initiative that we are supporting as the European Commission, and we are on the government advisory board, um, together with other countries, um, including the United States, all EU member state, uh, states, of course, um, Canada, China as well. Um, there's also the European Investment Bank that is involved, um, among others, uh, some UN agencies, so forth. Um, this uh, gets me to um, the importance of investing, of course, in EU research, innovation, and deployment of uh, this new technology. Um, I will give you a little bit of a, um, a sense of uh, what the dimension of such uh, investing or oftentimes co-investing is uh, by uh, the European Union, uh, mostly at the moment through the Digital Europe program and the Horizon um, program. Um, as well as um, the AI and blockchain investment fund, which, um, which actually um, is uh, developed in partnership between the European Commission and the European Investment Fund with a total um, financial contributions of 100 million euros and um, has been able, um, this AI and blockchain investment fund has been able to leverage these 100 million um, into, um, into um, 700 million for 2020 alone through co-investments from venture capital uh, funds and national promotional banks. So this is what we want to see, right? We want to um, help to un un unlock more investment um, and, uh, and leverage um, our contribution uh, into a higher financial impact. So that is, um, is uh, what we... Um, managed very successfully for 2020, and uh, we are uh, hopeful and determined to continue this in the future as well. Then last but not least, and this is very true for myself, um, since I'm a lawyer by training, um, um, of course, the legal and regulatory framework is, uh, is critical, right? Um, it needs to be um, uh, adapted um, sometimes. It needs to be seen in light of emerging technologies. Uh, deal with any regulatory gaps that might be there. Um, so uh, there are legal questions, which I will tell you about in a little bit as well, um, that are um, on, on the top of our mind um, right now with regard to blockchain um, and that uh, relate to current legislative um, efforts um, that are underway um, as well at the EU level. And then again, last but not least, um, we put a strong focus at the EU and at the European Commission on not just promoting, but in fact supporting um, and promoting standardization and interoperability of blockchain networks in Europe, but also beyond as well, uh, also internationally.
um, we would go to the next slide and I'm not connecting with the clicker again. Thank you. Okay, so um, I already kind of gave it away on the European blockchain partnership, but again, to drive this point home, this is really um, a, a foundational piece of the European Union's uh, work is the joint um, initiative with the member states through the European blockchain partnership um, with the key objective to um, develop the European blockchain services infrastructure. Um, we really, so uh, uh, perhaps I should say a little bit more about the EPSI, right? So what is uh, the EPSI? I mentioned it's a pan-European blockchain services infrastructure, um, which really in the current moment is focusing on using blockchain for the delivery of public services um, in line with European values and standards. What would that be? Well, standards is EU laws, of course, but what are European values? Um, among others, you know, that are at the forefront of our uh, thinking and guide the, the design and the development of the EPSI as well as the deployment is a privacy, sustainability, security, just to, to name a few. Um, but right now the EPSI is really focused on leveraging blockchain for an efficient um, and, and, and privacy-preserving, secure um, delivery of public services across several use cases. Um, so these use cases would run on top of the EPSI infrastructure. The technical infrastructure is developed by the European Commission. Um, the use cases are, um, are then operating on top of this technical infrastructure and are, um, are these use cases are, um, are operated or, or, or driven, I should say driven, um, driven um, by the member states, um, some of them in collaboration with some commission services. Um, the idea really is to have the public sector as a trailblazer for blockchain in Europe and show um, tangible use cases and how they can be deployed, especially cross-border use cases on top of this infrastructure. The idea would be in the future um, to have private applications run on top of the EPSI infrastructure as well, but right now it is merely public services that um, would run as use cases driven by the EBP member states and their experts on top of the EPSI um, infrastructure. That would take me to the next slide, which could you, would you mind? I'm having trouble with this clicker. Okay, how does it? Okay, okay. So um, if you if you take a look at um, at uh, at this uh, at this graph or this picture, this this just illustrates what I just told you. Um, it illustrates that um, the basis of everything are the EPSI core services, which includes um, the development of software, which includes the development of software, sorry, which includes the development um, of software for the node operation. Um, the nodes on which the EPSI infrastructure uh, runs are hosted by member states, EBP member states, um, as well as a few nodes currently by the European Commission. This might, however, change in the future that the Commission has no nodes anymore that it is running. Um, then it also includes the development of software for um, 
for the wallets, uh, for example. Um, it includes um, the development of software for all kinds of applications that intersect with the EPSI. So this is really make and the APIs, of course. So this is making up the technical infrastructure, which is developed um, by the European Commission. On top of the infrastructure, you have the EBP cross-border use cases, which again are selected on an annual basis by the European Blockchain Partnership. There are currently seven use cases selected, four at an advanced stage, three in an earlier stage. I will get to this in a moment. And the idea um, in the future, as I said, is to have um, use cases beyond the EBP cross-border use cases run on the EPSI. These can be private um, sector applications or strictly national local use cases that do not necessarily have a cross-border pan-European dimension. So this would take me to the next slide. Uh, would you be able to please skip me? Yes, fantastic, thank you. Um, so this is uh, giving you an overview of the seven use cases that are currently um, select have currently been selected by the member states um, to be uh, developed and then um, then deployed on the EPSI infrastructure. Um, the one that is currently in in a pilot phase already is the diplomas use case. Um, which uh, uses a uh, blockchain to um, exchange um, diplomas, university diplomas, and other accredited, uh, accredited, I'm sorry, accredited, um, hang on, um, one moment. Okay. And, um, and other accredited education uh, credentials. Other, um, other use cases um, use blockchain as a trust tool to authenticate and record data for the purposes of document traceability, um, for example, for auditing purposes. Blockchain, as you I'm sure know, is very well suited uh, for auditing purposes because it, 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 it creates uh, an immutable audit trail if you want. So um, this, is, this is a core function uh, that is developed um, in, in this particular use case. Then there is what we call the ESIP use case, the European Self-Sovereign Identity Framework, which is more framework than a use case, really. Um, the reason being that it, um, it, um, it uh, really focuses on developing um, an SSI framework, which can be used for all kinds of identification and verification services um, for other EPSI use cases as well. Um, then there is a use case that, um, that employs a blockchain for trusted data sharing among public um, authorities. Um, right now, we are focusing on the exchange of bad information um, among fiscal authorities in Europe. Um, so the ones in blue are the four use cases that are at a more advanced state, uh, stage. Um, the ones that you see white, um, they are the ones that have just been selected and are still in the process of being shaped in terms of scope and what these use cases would entail um, in particular and how blockchain can contribute to the, to the specific objectives of these use cases. So um, there is the EU social security pass, for example, which aims to use blockchain to facilitate 
cross-border access to welfare services and rights portability for citizens across Europe. Then there is the asylum uh, use case, which would use blockchain and the EPSI ledger, right, the infrastructure, the core infrastructure, to facilitate the coordination um, between national authorities concerning asylum requests, especially under the Dublin uh, procedure. Um, and then last but not least, there is the SME financing use case. And this is a use case that's still in a very early stage and we're still exploring various options of what this use case could look like. Um, I can tell you what it will not be um, that we do know. It will not, and I repeat, not be a trading platform for crypto assets. The EPSI is not being used for that. Um, something that could be an option um, would be, for example, uh, something that the European Investment Bank did, um, like uh, they issued a 100 million tokenized uh, bond um, recently. So um, that could be uh, one option to explore how the EPSI could be used to cut out um, clearing and custodian intermediaries to mitigate and manage um, uh, uh, mitigate and manage counterparty risks in payment settlement processes, and thus um, uh, facilitate and enhance SME um, access to financing. So this would get me to the next slide, please. So um, I'm not going to go in much uh, detail on this. I let this kind of speak for itself, but I did want to uh, give you an idea um, how the exchange of verifiable credentials in particular works on the EPSI. Um, and this is really um, in essence pertaining to the ESIF um, use case, right? Uh, developing a, a self-sovereign identity framework um, and this exchange of verifiable credentials is a key pillar for many, uh, many of the other use cases running on the EPSI as well. Um, the key um, added value of blockchain here really is that the holder, so the person like uh, you, me, holding a university diploma, for example, they would request um, the issuing of a digital, a digital credential from the issuer, which is usually a government authority. Um, and then store this digital credential, this verifiable credential in your wallet on your phone, right? It's with you. And then um, if you wanted to um, prove to an employer, to another university that in fact you graduated with a bachelor's degree, a master's degree already from another institution, you would um, share a verifiable presentation with that verifier, but not the actual information itself. The actual information itself stays with you in your wallet, which is also a key feature of the, S, uh, of the EPSI to actually uh, develop the software for these wallets to run on top of the infrastructure. And um, the verifier would then um, use the EPSI ledger, right, to verify the authenticity of the information of the verifiable presentation and the information of the issuer, which is the information uh, this, uh, which is this information by the issuer anchored, not recorded in clear text or even encrypted, but simply anchored with a DIT, right, a, um, um, a, a pseudo-anonymous identifier on the EPSI ledger, right? And this DIT, this um, identifier, which is saved on the EPSI ledger, would then allow any verifier, like another university, an employer, 
school you want to apply to and prove that you have, um, in fact, graduated from university, um, they would then um, connect with the EPSI ledger and verify through um, the SCID anchored on the ledger that the information is, in fact, authentic. Um, next slide, please. So um, this is just uh, to illustrate in graphic terms what I've said before, um, that the ESIF framework, so this exchange of verifiable credentials, right, to verify the authenticity of identity information and also um, um, information about um, a claim, about a status, right, um, um, the, the, the relevance of this use case and this exchange of verifiable credentials on the EPSI for the other use cases, like, for example, the diploma use case, which was just the illustration I used, or the social security use case. Um, this also, and let me just mention this, um, for those of you who are lawyers in the room and might be interested in the regulatory dimension, um, this whole exchange of verifiable credentials is very closely related to um, a proposed new trust service for issuers of credentials under the um, revised the IDAS regulation, which is uh, currently with Parliament and Council. Um, this new proposed IDAS regulation would also lay the, the groundwork for an EU-wide digital wallet. Um, so um, if this is, uh, this is something to watch out for, this will be very critical um, for many use cases across, uh, across different uh, sectors and spectrums. Um, again, uh, why is blockchain useful um, for all of this? I mean, I'm sure you're all experts by now on blockchain and, um, you know, I'm stating the obvious here. Um, and of course, many esteemed colleagues in, in the room, but sometimes it's good to state the obvious still. And I mean, the uh, blockchain here really serves as a trust anchor, right? Um, since it, 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 registers, it registers information on the blockchain in a way that this information that is anchored on the blockchain cannot be altered. It's immutable. It's an immutable auditing trail and thus very good for verifying um, information, for tracking and tracing in supply chains, which is a, is a very important and rather developed use cases for blockchain at this moment in time. Um, this would get me to the next slide, please. So um, this is just to give you a sense of the timeline um, and uh, our, our timelines uh, um, in, in, in the pandemic, um, like, you know, for all of us um, um, had to be um, adjusted, but this is where we are at right now. Uh, we are progressing well and are, um, are, um, um, are continuing. Um, with, um, with, the, um, with finishing the pre-production phase of EPSI and entering into the production phase of the, of the infrastructure, the European blockchain services infrastructure in 2022, and then IS from 2023 to scale up, uh, scale up the EPSI. So, um, you know, this is uh, where we are at right now. Um, and this would conclude my my elaborations on the EPSI and the blockchain partnership and bring me to one of um, our other key initiatives, which I mentioned before. So if we could go to the next slide, please. So um, this is what I, uh, what I uh, briefly mentioned before, the what we call INAPFA, International Association for Trusted Blockchain Applications. 
and this is this is a multi-stakeholder forum that really um, uh, 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 enhances facilitates regulatory dialogue um, which is is critical um, on many issues um, across um, 14 working groups that um, have been set up within INAFA um, ranging from as you see on the slide climate change finance um, privacy um, supply chain uh, social impact so forth um, then there is um, there are the company members around 160 right now. Um, they are uh, this is a global multi-stakeholder forum, um, so including European startups um, and companies as well as non-European ones. And um, as I said, this is a multi-stakeholder forum, um, uh, and this uh, is implemented through the government advisory board. Um, which includes all EU member states, the US, China, Canada, um, several UN agencies, the European Investment Bank, so forth. Um, so Enafa really is, um, we see Enafa as the key, uh, the key link to um, channel the voice of the industry, understand the concerns, the limitations in development and deploying these, these new technologies and engaging in a constructive, regular, um, continuous dialogue with um, both European um, as well as um, global um, regulators and standard setting bodies. If you could please go to the next slide. Um, so this, um, uh, this is uh, an amazing resource, which I would um, recommend you um, to look up. Um, the European Blockchain Observatory and Forum. Uh, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletter, which keeps you, um, well, Ubox news, newsletter, um, which keeps you um, briefed um, about the upcoming events, uh, workshops, which regularly are being held, of course, digitally since the pandemic, um, every few months um, on different um, uh, contemporary blockchain-related topics both regulatory, legal, and policy-oriented. Um, there have been 17 thematic reports so far um, on a variety of issues concerning blockchain, uh, including blockchain in the health sector, digital assets, smart contracts, blockchain governance, cybersecurity, digital identity, um, supply chain and blockchain, GDPR, um, and I, so if you go to the website um, of uh, the European Blockchain Observatory and Forum, you will have access to all these thematic reports, which are a fantastic research in a fast moving, uh, fast moving field. Um, so if we go to the next slide, you see um, our latest uh, or the, the latest thematic reports and um, the next upcoming topics to give you a little flavor. Um, one of the latest thematic reports, um, highly relevant, of course, um, and I, 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 I do it did take note that some of the discussion went into, into this direction earlier um, in your event, non-fungible tokens, uh, the energy efficiency of blockchain, right? I mean, some blockchain infrastructures are highly um, energy, um, energy consuming, right? If you think about Bitcoin, public permissionless blockchains. Um, however, um, most blockchains uh, of the newer generation are uh, private permissioned blockchains, um, as you, uh, as I'm sure you know. Um, so they are uh, much more um, energy efficient. But this report really 
um, takes a, a hard, close look at where we stand, uh, what still needs to be done, what are the challenges, um, what is, can be the road forward to ensure that blockchains are in fact sustainable and are helping to solve the problem rather than contributing to it. Then um, there's a recent report, again, highly topical on central bank digital currencies and what a digital Europe could, lo a digital Euro could look like. Um, some of the um, upcoming thematic reports um, would deal with blockchain for social impact and blockchain for sustainability. So in other words, um, how blockchain can contribute to climate action and promote climate action, highly topical. Uh, blockchain in the in, uh, in the mobility sector, autonomous driving, so forth. This would take me to the next slide, please. So just to give you a, um, a sense of the dimension um, of uh, EU investing or co-investing in blockchain, and uh, these numbers of 347 million euros are simply under uh, are simply and solely under the Horizon 2020 program. We have many other um, co-investing and funding programs as well, but under Horizon 2020, this is um, uh, amounting to 347 million uh, euros between 2016 and up to 2023, 2025. Um, this would get me to the next slide, please. Here, um, this is just to give you a, an idea of the breakdown by sector of such EU funding. Um, the biggest chunk um, making up for security and public services at almost uh, 50, uh, 47. Then uh, we have um, Internet of Things, sustainability, um, advanced manufacturing, as I mentioned, um, supply chain uh, using um, the tracking and, uh, tracking and tracing capability of blockchain for uh, supply chains, um, a very topical um, and uh, very important for the industry and many pilots that have been developed on that. Uh, this would take me to the next slide, please. So this is now getting me into um, my, my, you know, uh, much of what I spent my time on, uh, being a lawyer by training, um, working on, on blockchain and emerging technologies for the commission. Um, as I mentioned, there are legal topics that, um, that come up uh, when we deal with decentralized uh, systems like blockchain, and that will need um, that will need um, addressing through a legislative or other action. Um, one is smart contracts. Um, uh, the question of um, how to ensure that smart contracts are going to be enforceable uh, um, to determine jurisdictional issues in 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 um, in in the case of disputes. Then, of course, tokenization. This gets to, as many, all of you know, I'm sure, Mika, right? The, um, the EU um, um, crypto asset regulation, which is, is currently underway and under preparation um, and uh, in discussion in the legislative process. Then, um, as I'm sure you're also aware, blockchain um, does raise uh, some issues with GDPR which um, are important to be pointed out and they are important to be addressed. Um, one, um, one key feature of blockchain, as I mentioned earlier, being that it is immutable, right? So um, making it a very uh, reliable, um, a very reliable uh, technology to verify information or verify the authenticity, I should say, um, of information anchored on the ledger. 
um, but of course it can uh, it 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 can it creates some tension with um, with for example the right to be forgotten right um, and how this can be implemented in line with EU jurisprudence and in line with GDP, uh, GDPR and the interpretation of the European Data Protection Board. Um, I would encourage you to keep an eye out um, for the um, forthcoming blockchain guidelines, which are currently under preparation by the European blockchain partner, uh, uh, European, sorry, European, uh, not blockchain, sorry, European Data Protection Board, very different, sorry, acronym very similar though. Um, so that's something to, to watch out for. Then SSI solutions under the EIDAS framework, I mentioned that um, uh, earlier, there is, um, in fact, in the current proposal for the EIDAS regulation, a new trust service for electronic immutable ledgers, um, which can also include blockchain ledgers, um, which now sets a common standard for trustworthy electronic ledgers um, um, across the EU with legal effect um, if, if, if that proposal would prevail. Um, but it is part of our legislative proposal, so something to keep out as for as uh, look out for as well. And then, last but not least, even though it's not uh, legal in a narrow way, but normative in a broader broader way, and the ethics of blockchain. Um, and I would like to draw your attention here to um, the um, work of the EBP, European Blockchain Partnership Expert Group on Blockchain Ethics, um, which has just taken up its work. Um, or addressing some of the ethical dimensions um, of blockchain design, but also how blockchain is being used and what it is used for. So also something to, to watch out for. Um, I would like to conclude my presentation and um, I see I'm running a little bit behind, so I'm just keeping this very short. I would like to conclude um, with a few uh, remarks on regulatory sandboxes, since this is something we are very focused on at the EU and at the European Commission right now. Um, um, so, setting up regular, a regulatory sandbox for blockchain in particular, we are in, in the process of doing that. We expect the sandbox to be live by Q4 2022, so end of this year, depending, of course, on the realities we live in, but um, with the pandemic. But uh, this is uh, the plan to provide um, a, a testing environment. Um, to live test the deployment of innovative blockchain solutions, again, in line with EU standards and values. If you go to the next slide, please. So just to give you, um, oh, well, okay, this uh, was uh, interim. Well, these are, these are the current legislative initiatives that I mentioned. Um, that relate um, either directly or uh, indirectly to uh, blockchain or, uh, or DLT-related issues, uh, MICA, um, EIDAS, and then also um, the Data Act, which um, did have its public consultation conclude Excuse in September me. 21. Uh, Caroline? It did also include questions on smart contracts. Caroline? So, um, so I leave it as at that. If you have questions on... Uh, Sandboxing, um, as I said, it would be um, operational um, by end of 2022. Please let me know. Um, there will be a call for proposals for companies, and I'm sorry for running over. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, Caroline. Uh, please give her uh, a hand. Uh, sorry to interrupt you there, Caroline, but yes, no, um, no, 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 no. we went a few minutes over. Too much and, to tell. I'm trying to keep a tight <laughs> ship here. So, 
Thank you very much, and unfortunately, um, we won't have time for questions, but uh, I'm sure everyone enjoyed your presentations. And uh, can I just add that uh, I counted at least 11 different acronyms uh, in one of your bullet points uh, for participating uh, partners in one of the projects. So a very, very acronym-heavy presentation, but you did a wonderful uh, job with it. Thank you very much, Caroline. Thank you for having me. And now, uh, coming up, our third keynote today. Uh, let's see if we can make up for, for lost time. Uh, and in any case, uh, we have a, a break coming up. I'm sure we can find five minutes there in our coffee break. But with us now, again, through the uh, wonders of streaming technology, we have Francis Gross, uh, who is Senior Advisor at the European Central Bank. And uh, Francis Gross will be talking about sustainable digitalization and what it will take to Stay in control, hopefully, as uh, technology keeps accelerating. Welcome, Francis. I hope you're with us. No, I'm with me. That's very, uh, very confusing. Um, do we have um, Francis coming up? Can you hear me? There he is. Welcome. Okay, here I am. Good to see you. Please give uh, Francis uh, a warm welcome. And. No further ado, the floor is yours. Take it away. Okay. Thank you very much. I, I think I'll uh, the sound on my side because I want to hear me myself talking. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, good. Um, so uh, let's try the clicker. Can we have the slide? Here we go. Yes, so before I try to take into the presentation, I, I would just, um, I just wanted to quickly say where I come from. Uh, I'm uh, at the ECB in the Director General Statistics, and I was there from 2006 onwards. Um, when I arrived, I saw the way data is treated uh, in the financial sector, coming from the automotive sector, uh, couldn't be sustainable. Um, and I started thinking about what to do about it. And then two years later came the Lehman experience, which confirmed that I was on the right track. And Jean-Claude Trichet at the time, um, I would like to have a uh, conversation with him, um, supported the initiative I was pushing, which was basically to create the legal entity identifier. You know. uh, so that, that is the background. Um, is, oh, the clicker doesn't work. Um, Let's see. Can we? No, it doesn't work. Or does it work delayed? Okay, first let me try the definition of sustainability. Well, sustainability uh, lies in our ability uh, to keep the system going as we like it and to keep it going in a controlled fashion, not just by luck. And so far, I, I feel that uh, we are progressing just by luck. Um, especially sustainability versus technological change. Uh, so we have heard um, a lot of miracles uh, that uh, you are doing with blockchain. There are many other fields in technology that are progressing fast. And we are just adding technology, but on the old side of the world, uh, there is not much change happening. So uh, when you put uh, data together in ever larger databases, it comes coming from ever more sources. You find yourself with, uh, for instance, 20 different identifiers uh, of the same object, and the system doesn't know that it's the same object. 
Uh, so all the technology isn't worth much when you can't aggregate all that data to obtain a good picture of the world as, for instance, statisticians want to produce them for the policymakers who need to keep the world going. That seems to work, but with a delay. Yes, so um, when we talk about risk, I prefer to take the flip side, control, because you can't engineer that. Uh, control starts with uh, the real world system you look at, then you measure, uh, you analyze what is being measured, and uh, you act, which keeps the system hopefully stable. And that applies at all levels in life. Say if someone throws a ball at you, your eyes will perceive the ball coming, uh, your brain analyzes, this is going to hit my nose, your hands go up, catch the ball. But it's exactly the same um, when something happens in the markets. Statisticians say, well, something's happening in the market, but the stock markets have said it faster. Um, the analysts then come up with uh, some explanation based on what they observe and what the statisticians can tell them. Um, and the governing council, say, of the ECB uh, takes action. Um, in the case of Lehman, uh, that did not really work because uh, as one colleague in banking said it, we knew about the next domino when we had it on our head. And um, that is moving faster nowadays, even than it was um, years ago. Uh, and control has two facets. Um, I like this quote of Ernest Hemingway, uh, the author of one of his characters in that book, to the question, how did your uh, business go bust? Well, gradually, then suddenly. Um, and that uh, takes me to two definitions of control. Uh, so first is control fast. So that is when the crisis happens, you need to be ready. Uh, the moment happens, you need to be alert um, and uh, then fast in your analysis, precise and fit in your action. Uh, then you survive the crisis. The second layer of control is slow layer. That is the one where we need to do something. Uh, here we need to observe the world, be sensitive to the changes that are happening. So for instance, is there a balance between technology and the way we label stuff, for instance? We need to have foresight because when we're slow acting, we need to uh, prepare our actions long before the results are needed. Uh, we need to be wise enough uh, to perhaps take a break in the race uh, to apply technology as soon as out of the lab. We need the courage to confront the people who don't want to make a stop. Um, and all of that is needed to maintain our readiness. Uh, so a nice concept, which I came across not so long ago, is that of the exponential gap. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, this clicker is not really well timed, but if someone else clicks for me, thank you, you do it very well. Um, the curve of technology exponential. The curve at which our control progresses is a straight line that should be coming up anytime soon. Um, technology accelerates uh, and at some point technology crosses the line and continues accelerating. In all the time before that crossing, symbolically speaking, well, my colleagues were right when they said we do technology neutral regulation. They still say the same, but this is becoming less and less, um, let's say, less and less um, competent, I would say. Um, the trouble is that when cracks begin to appear 
usually um, there is denial at first. So we do what we do, it works well, okay, we put some fixes in, um, but when it becomes clear for intelligent people that the system needs to change a bit more profoundly, then denial comes in because, uh, well, it's not so easy to change. Uh, the trouble is that as technology progresses, the relevant system, say for financial stability, becomes larger and larger. Say the, the financial crisis of 2008 started in New York and it didn't take long to come to Europe. So the relevant system for financial stability in Europe, for instance, is the world meanwhile. Uh, so we need to agree among more people and that makes agreement slower to reach. Um, so, yeah, next. One example is unstandardization. Um, so we have more social complexity thanks to technology because nowadays when you are in a conference like today, uh, there are people from many, many diverse backgrounds coming together. That makes agreements in the world of standardization, for instance, because we need worldwide standards, increasingly necessary and urgent. But at the same time, uh, more difficult and slower to achieve. Um, for instance, working, have, having been working for 15 years on that very simple standard of uh, the legal entity identifier, which is simply put a number plate on each legal entity, uh, tells me uh, the story. I mean, we now have uh, in that system that is G20 backed, 2 million legal entities covered. Uh, but uh, just for the unaccredited loan database at the ECB, we have 12 million counterparties that are relevant. Uh, that is too slow. So small case study, that uh, is the most philosophical we'll get here. It's about language. So what is um, data? Well, when you have um, a machine, the sense uh, well, the clicker is not really reacting. Could you have the next click, please? Okay. Yeah, when you have the, the context of sensor, processor, actuator, uh, there no question data is technology, there is a sensor that captures things, there is only one fact, one representation per fact, and uh, rigorous discipline, the machine doesn't deviate. So then let's take uh, the, another context, you have Jill, her laptop and her Excel. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, and there you realize data is language. Well, she puts stuff into her Excel um, the way she thinks. It's her language, uh, there is free expression. And of course, between Jill and the others, there is diversity. Now, when you have many people, a network, processes and databases behind, well, there we, we still treat data as language. We put our stuff in as we please, uh, but the machine needs data as technology. So the, the question is, well, when we talk about standardization, is it the struggle against ourselves? So how, what forces will help us to agree that we need to um, basically give up some of our human freedom in uh, designating things and labeling things if you want uh, those labels to work well in machines. Um, that, that is uh, an insight that um, should change a standards conversation, but so far it doesn't. And, and that means that the real world is a problem for all those technologies but it has a problem also with all those technologies that are now coming up. Could we go to the next slide? Yeah, and again, I click, because I'm, I'm absolutely not sure that this clicker works. Um, so what do we do when slow meets fast? Say for instance, in sport, well, uh, you anticipate. If you start avoiding the fist of the other boxer, the moment you have it on your nose, it's too late. So you, as soon as you see 
it's starting, you start moving. Um, when I uh, look at the speed of change in regulation, um, so for instance, the, the previous speaker uh, presented how the EU is moving pretty fast on the new technologies now, but there is very slow movement in uh, changing, for instance, the uh, legacy statistical leg uh, legislation uh, that locks us down into pre-digital times. So we, we will need time to change these things because many, many forces uh, are quite, uh, let's see, um, inert in, in this context. Um, that means we need to start now. Um, the way to approach this, uh, usually, I mean, many in, in policy, yeah, yeah, just click on, please. Um, in uh, policy work, uh, people start with very small details because that's what we can control. Uh, I have come to the conclusion that actually, if we want to think of the sustainability of the system, we need to think big, we need to think systemic design. And that must be conceptual and ambitious, a bit abstract, a bit philosophical, yes. Um, those uh, filters that uh, you always encounter um, in the public sphere, especially, but also sometimes in the private sphere, those must come later. So the realistically feasible, the pragmatic, um, that should then be considered later once we have a, a good design. So you build a house, uh, you will start discussing the broad concept with your architect, you will design your dreams, um, and then once you come to the purse, you will realize actually we need to tear it down a bit, but you have the idea by then. Um, one aspect that's essential in measuring finance and the economy, uh, and, and measuring means not only for the public sector statisticians, but also say for a large bank who wants to know what their businesses in the world are doing, and that can be thousands of businesses. Um, well, the question is always reporting, because some things are done, and then there are reports which are brought together, which are uh, compiled into annual reports of companies or into, um, into statistics. Um, the logic many, many years ago was already to build management information systems. And yes, once good data is in the system, it's easy then uh, to uh, produce those reports. The problem is always to get the data. Uh, now, again, when a crisis happens in the modern world, in the world of technology, of global systems, of blockchains, of networks, 5G, and, and so on, uh, the smallest relevant system is global. The speed, will, the speed will be instantly global. A shock happens in New York, you'll have it immediately on the markets elsewhere, and it's complex. So for effective measurement of that system, the specifications are simple. It must be global, real-time, and nimble, adaptable to the situation you did not expect. That means, uh, as a first conclusion, design specification, we need a fully automated chain from operators to, for operations to regulators, and the data across the whole system must therefore be standardized, um, starting, of course, with the basics, for instance, identifiers. The next conclusion is about the reporting supply chain. Well, that cannot be compressed to real time. If you have uh, systems that extract or people that extract data from operational systems, um, that takes time. When many, many uh, agents report to a central bank, that takes time. Collecting the data, fixing the quality also takes time. 
and that makes that uh, you're soon out of time. Uh, we need a different design. Um, a simple conclusion, like or not, is that the same data would have to serve operations and measurement. Let's move to the next slide. So now let's look at what we have built. Well, what we have built uh, is a huge socio-technical system. Um, we built it one machine at a time. Every business that invests in technology chooses the technology that suits it best, uh, that suits its own interests, and um, uh, puts it into the network. Uh, these machines, non-networked, uh, create a tightly coupled system. So I see it as a single global system, so a hyperorganism under our feet, growing slowly and hardly noticed at all, not seen as such very often. And that system not being seen is invisible, but uh, as soon as something unexpected happens, say for instance the failure of a bank, uh, the impacts jump out at you in the visible world. Uh, that means we need to make that system visible for our own safety. Uh, we need to do some city planning in that uh, tech slum. I mean, I always have vision of Kayalicha, this township near Cape Town, when, for those of you who know, uh, four million people living there, everyone built their shack where they could with what they had, um, and not thinking about uh, roads, about uh, water flowing in and out, and so on and so forth. So we need city planning. Um, that needs think system-wide thinking and we must make the system measurable. It's not enough to just improve the measurement tools we have today. Um, for that, we need a new way to see the economic system, and that, that's where we're going to come closer to the blockchain world. Um, I've come to the um, concept for myself that, well, if I see the uh, economic system as a network of contracts that connects a global population of parties, it makes a lot of things easier because here we have a graph. We click on. Um, one fundamental aspect uh, of uh, a good digital representation of the world is that uh, we should have one representation only for each object on which we agree. I mean, it's not always easy to agree on objects. Everyone sees the world differently. Uh, but uh, there are objects that are real, that are made real by law, for instance, legal entities, including humans, I mean, we are human animals, but uh, our contract with the sovereign, for instance, our passport that's issued by the sovereign, our identity makes us legal entities that can enter into contracts. A contract is a legally uh, factual object. Uh, those objects uh, can be represented once only and should be. Just click the whole slide on, please. Yeah. Now from there, um, things flow. So each of these representations should be stored in a network cloud. Um, that should be global. Now it can be federated in the sense that countries organize their own uh, segment of it. Uh, it can be layered in the sense that some of the basic layers are public, some of the uh, upper layers are confidential, uh, so privacy is an issue. Um, I don't deal with privacy here. I just uh, look at the overall system design. Um, and I call that the network cloud. Uh, the, uh, so once it starts building, and if we could start building it from identifier, so the global legal entity identifier system is a public good. It is operational. It just needs to be mandated now by law so that every legal entity has an LEI. And then um, a lot of businesses could uh, do things much more easily, which are today complicated and expensive and sometimes simply not done. 
Um, network effects could then also help to grow uh, the system once the benefits become visible. Say, for instance, if you look at the environment, um, you want to know whether a product is green or not. Well, uh, how can you know that if you can't do the basic minimum, which is to identify the entire network of contracts that forms the supply chain that leads to that uh, product um, and aggregate that data over, for instance, all products of a company, say a car manufacturer with uh, thousands of uh, suppliers across the world in, in a Christmas tree uh, type of organization. Um, now, it's not that far away to build such a world um, once you want it because many of the technologies are here I mean, and, and also the habits are uh, emerging. So now every company goes into the cloud, but they all build their own little silo, their own little shack in the cloud as they did in the, in the previous world. So that needs to be looked at. Blockchain distributed ledger. I mean, we heard before from Adi that blockchain can be very energy inefficient, but there are other concepts. Um, I think that if some of the um, blockchains or distributed ledgers uh, for instance, holding data set tokens that represent assets were permission that could make it energy efficient as well. And you could again exploit uh, current infrastructure such as Notary Public, who instead of just printing it on paper could also put it into a blockchain. Um, and from there, it's uh, the open world to your technological uh, applications. Uh, global LEI system uh, should be the first such infrastructure. Let's move on. Now, let's look at, again, the, the entire global system from a systemic stability standpoint. Well, we have that global system integrated by technology and tightly coupled. And on the other side, we have a regulatory landscape, uh, including the central banks and all kinds of supervisors uh, of, in the banking sector, insurance sector, and so on, pension funds. Um, and that's a landscape that maps political geography. I mean, you have Banque de France, you have the Danske Bank, uh, you have uh, Netherlands Bank, uh, Bank of England, and that's here to stay. Uh, those institutions are also fragmented along sectoral uh, borders. So you have the banking supervisors, you have insurance supervisors, and so on. Um, the problem is easy to understand, say, for instance, when Wirecard had a little trouble, uh, Buffin, the German banking regulator, was able to look at uh, those entities, legal entities of Wirecard based in Germany with a banking license. So that, that makes it difficult to understand the problem in its entirety. Um, the real uh, case that keeps me going are, is the interface between those two systems, because those two worlds are going to stay largely as they are. I mean, political geography will remain what it is, and uh, people want to have their national institutions. Uh, rightly, and uh, technology will continue to integrate the global system and make it faster. So we need to look at the interface, and that interface must be made to work. Next slide, please. Uh, and that has in, an impact, I am speaking here uh, purely on my own responsibility, but uh, the current institutional mandates um, are uh, in need for a, a review on the side of data collection say um, so we, we need we collect data today at the bottom of our own silo uh, but then again confront that with the specifications we had before we need system-wide real-time data integration um, therefore it would be wise simply to have all these 
institutions do their measurement from a single system-wide data infrastructure. Um, and that global technical infrastructure institution uh, would then perhaps also play a role in overseeing the network cloud so that uh, everything works well there. And that could help. Um, so last, next to last slide. We can ride a couple of trends uh, if we are clever and lucky uh, to have leaders who uh, see the, the possibilities. Um, for instance, the struggle to keep the environment uh, in good order so that it supports our society, uh, that will have shared interests uh, with the, the world of financial stability. Um, the network cloud would serve both. Uh, I mean, you're uh, perhaps a little parenthesis here. Uh, a contract is an algorithm. It says who does what for whom, when, under what circumstances. Uh, if we could represent contracts in algorithms, that would fit perfectly well into the world of blockchain, uh, smart contracts. And um, so your tech world could serve the environment and finance at the same time if we have the politicians in charge of legislating the rule uh, come to the right uh, conclusions. And let me finish, last slide, a conceptual foundation of this thinking. I take a four-layer model of the economy. First is the human layer. That is where the economic game is being played. That's where we do transactions, where we go to work, and we live. So if you come from Mars and look at uh, the planet from 10 kilometers up, that's what you see. The next is the contract layer. I mean, all these people who by miracle go out in the morning, uh, go to a shop where they get bread, because someone got up early to bake the bread, uh, all of that uh, miracle world is working because there are contracts. So the contract layer, that's where the real legally technical substance of the economy is found. And all these contracts are based in, in the law of sovereigns, um, including Assets, an asset is also a contract with a sovereign. That pile of bricks is my house, uh, says the sovereign. Uh, the next layer is the technology layer. Well, those contracts run on something. In the past, they run on memory. So someone remembers the promise made by someone else who forgot it, uh, not good enough. So we have them now on paper after having uh, gone through clay tablets. And meanwhile, uh, this is all on uh, paper and systems and brains. Uh, so that is that socio-technical uh, system that uh, we talk about, uh, and that is not architecture, but that is becoming more and more uh, complex, much faster, more automated, out of reach of human perception and human understanding. And the last layer, it's the natural environment. I mean, all these things can only run if there is an equilibrium with the natural environment because, uh, well, the human layer activity uh, rejects uh, stuff into the environment and takes things out of it. Um, that is just the model to, to frame this. And I think with this, I'm done. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Francis Cruz, that was, uh, that was excellent. Uh, again, I'm afraid we don't really have time for questions, but I'm sure you've given us all uh, a lot of stuff to think about in the break, so, uh, so thank you very much. Thanks, uh, give uh, Francis thank uh, you. a hand again, thank you. Thanks.
can I just add before we go to uh, Roman's uh, presentation and while he's setting up that it's wonderful for those of us who are old enough to remember old school slideshows where you really had to say to someone operating a physical clicker, next slide please, next slide please, that we are reverting in the midst of a blockchain event, no less, to a time where you need to uh, have someone through the wonders of the internet operate uh, some sort of uh, slide clicker to advance the presentation. I think it's wonderful. And also um, uh, notice how they managed to negotiate uh, a process uh, and so we didn't have to say it eventually, they were just clicked. I think it's wonderful. Now, that was paddling, by the way. Um, that's it for the keynote part, or should I say almost uh, it for the keynote part of the uh, summit. We are nowhere done yet. Uh, we have a break in about uh, 17 minutes time, but before then I would like to welcome back on stage Professor Roman Beck from the UNP <laughs> that was difficult. European Blockchain Center, of course, who'll be talking about some of the exciting things going on here. So, Roman, the floor is all yours. Thanks a lot, and thank you for the introduction. Uh, it is fantastic to speak after these kind of three brilliant speakers because a couple of things I'm talking about I don't have to explain to you now, uh, which, is, which is fantastic. Uh, we already heard about that uh, values are important, standards are important, regulation is important, and if we look at the last presentation we have seen from Francis, uh, those two worlds, technology and regulation, they will not go away. There is an interface and that interface needs to be managed and we have that tension to deal with and we have to figure out how to do that. What we are actually looking at when we are talking about blockchain solutions, we are typically looking at something that is sustainable. And of course, uh, you all have been fed by the UN SDG goals and if you can repeat all 17, you're really good. Kind of what we are typically talking about are the three P, yeah? and we, we, we have seen them implicitly already in the presentation, that is people, planet, profit. You know, kind of, uh, yes, indeed, profit is continuing to be important, but it is about people and their values and their norms, and at some point uh, that needs to be done in a way that it is not kind of exploiting the planet we are living on. And I really like the illustration Francis used with the layers uh, on, on our little, little rock here we call planet. What we actually initiated, and Caroline uh, mentioned it because she is a member of that expert group, is the working group that has been initiated uh, based on, on, a, on Danish uh, initi initiative, having a working group on blockchain ethics and blockchain ethical guidelines. And that is important uh, because we also have seen that EPSI, the European Blockchain Services Infrastructure, is working on different use cases. Uh, the credentials, the notarization, uh, the European so social security number, the SME funding. You have seen kind of member states like Denmark have once a year, depends a bit, the right to suggest a use case that is put on EPSI and eventually, if uh, it is a successful one, is put in the, into a queue of use cases that are to be realized on EPSI. And in my words, EPSI is something that is completing the single European market to become a single digital European market where you can move abroad, study abroad, and work abroad with a minimum of paper overhead, if you will. But those sy systems, those use cases on EPSI, they need to follow European values in order to be sustainable. But sustainability is not just, it's a very important part, but it's not just ecologic sustainability. 
It is sustainability in terms of longevity of a business model, of an economic model. It is about sustainability that meets our understanding of what is fair and just. Is that something I want? Is my data used in an in inappropriate way? Is that something that is wasting energy? And can I make a living out of that? And that is not a given. We have seen that in very good intention, Bitcoin has been created to overcome central silos and institutions that can control the financial services industry. So there is a value-driven intent, but to the expense of the environment. So often, you know, also the saying, uh, the, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, we have to make sure that you're not forgetting that this needs to be a coordinated attempt People, planet, profit, in my eyes, easier to remember than the UN SDG goals. So digital values, and if we talk about EPSI, the European Blockchain Partnership, it is, of course, also about protecting the digital sovereignty of Europe. Ursula von der Leyen, Margrethe Vesta, they are not getting uh, tired in emphasizing that as technology doesn't go away and regulation and norms will not go away, we have that constant struggle. And as Francis had pointed out, there is this expon exponential growth of technology, and then there is this illusion that control, that uh, accountability is going to be technology neutral. Of course, control is driven by technological developments, and I've given a presentation at the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg before GDPR became effective in front of 400 lawyers, and they said, what you, got, what you are talking about, blockchain, that needs to be changed. Immutability, that is not in sync what GDPR is going to do. And I said, that's not going to change. And they said, technology is always changing. Right? And, and I said, so is law. Right? So these are normative concepts, human-made concepts. But if, if we talk about defending the digital sovereignty of Europe, we first of all must define what we are defending. And that is the reason why uh, we actually think about ethical implications. How do we create systems that are not creating the next monster uh, that is eating us tomorrow? So there are intended but also unintended spillover effects, second over effects uh, that we need to foresee. And therefore, we often, uh, that is the slogan at the European Blockchain Center, think decentralized. And don't ask me what the question is, you know, for how you actually get to the point to think decentralized, but we think a lot about the process of getting there. So unintended societal effects, consequences, that is what needs to be prevented from happening. And as we have all kinds of different use cases under development right now at EPSI, and more and more are in the queue, we were wondering, wait a minute, if we are running for each and every project, what is the underlying common denominator? How are those projects actually defending the digital sovereignty of Europe? And that requires that we are giving guidelines for those who are developing them, the architects, the developers, that, so that they have an understanding what they are doing because there are conflicting goals, there are dilemmas, there are actually uh, tensions. You know, we talk about privacy, we know there's transparency, so how do we deal with transparency and privacy? Uh, and how do we value this in a moment where somebody is coding a smart contract and putting into effect something that is going to be around as a semi or fully autonomous system to operate, for example, working abroad. Uh, you are applying or you are participating in a tender process in Paris as a company here in Denmark, 
and then you are fully relying or are actually forced to use a system that is enforcing some values that may or may not work in your favor. And then, of course, the question is, and that is a direct relation to GDPR, as blockchain typically is not known for having a central data controller, a very important term in GDPR uh, con uh, concepts, but it's more also something that is uh, characterized as an autonomous system operating in some way, uh, hopefully in our favor, but maybe not. We need to figure out how we actually design, invent, test, implement, evaluate those systems so that all those values coming back to my 3P, people, planet, profit, are actually met. And that is not a trivial task. We already saw that picture. This is uh, in Brussels. This was a digital day 2019 when the Memorandum of Understanding was signed by the countries who decided on being uh, in this European blockchain partnership. I was there by invitation and I was super excited because the EU Commission was putting us, uh, the European Blockchain Center, on a map as some of the few places in Europe where you find blockchain life, so to speak. Denmark didn't sign the Memorandum of Understanding back then, and I was furious. And while this uh, kind of ceremony took place, I was writing to Brian Nicholson and back then tech ambassador Kasper Klünge, and I said, what I'm doing here, you know, kind of why, why the Danish delegation left, they signed the Memorandum of Understanding on AI. But after the lunch for the signing ceremony for the Memorandum of Understanding for blockchain, uh, the Danish delegation left and I was furious, I sent a mail, and then a few months later, Brian Mickelson said, I signed the contract, I signed the Memorandum of Understanding, but now you have to do it. Now I'm reappointed, you're looking at the uh, representative of Denmark at the European Blockchain Partnership in the technical working group, so if you have questions about what they are doing there, the use cases, especially SME financing, you can approach me afterwards. We also initiated Last year, Denmark initiated the need for having a working group, an expert group on ethical guidelines for, for blockchain. As we saw that in those different working groups, different values are implemented, different questions are discussed, but we really don't know how to deal with ethical consequences and values when it comes to giving guidance in how to implement that. And we cannot kind of rely on that a software developer, an enterprise architect is doing something in the very best intentions, but really is you know, doing it individually. So we uh, initiated a working group on blockchain ethics, which was approved in the September, October last year. And uh, under Danish leadership, we have the secretariat here at the blockchain center and working in the next 12 months, hopefully until the end of this year, on developing guidelines for ethics in blockchain systems. I do not have to talk about EPSI, but what you are looking here at is the new EPSI logo, which hasn't been revealed yet. Uh, so this is the logo of what Caroline was talking about, because there will be a campaign, a marketing campaign, to actually advertise EPSI and making it more known, um, as that is something that has tremendous impact on European business, but also, more importantly, on European citizens. Uh, there was a lot of talking about wallets and managing your digital credentials through wallets. This is affecting all of us, so we will hear more about EPSI. Uh, the European Blockchain Partnership, cross-border digital public service, with the intention of actually increasing this at a later stage, including private businesses. So that one is a quick one. It took us quite a while, actually, to identify experts, and you see Caroline here as well, and I'm super happy that she gave a presentation today to find some experts on a global scale who are willing to be philosophers, experts in ethics, 
but not necessarily, or in most cases not at all, experts on blockchain. So this is for them also an experiment, and I put those uh, faces here on the slide on purpose because I would like to thank those experts who have been so brave to be in that working group from Stanford, from uh, all over the place, I must say, so I'm not, I'm not uh, iterating through who are working now in the next 12 months in what we believe will be the first ethical guidelines issued by uh, um, a public institution in the world. Uh, we had just our third uh, working group meeting, and uh, Zine and I are quite active working in that, uh, and uh, we gave ourselves a very kind of rough agenda, so we will work on ethical foundations, ethical challenges. There are uh, paradoxes and challenges, and those need to be discussed, but ultimately we wanted to provide ethical guidelines that help when it comes to the practical application of those guidelines to help those who are developing those systems in an implementation phase to hopefully make whatever the right decisions are, hopefully make the right decisions. Um, ding, ding, ding. That, that was too fast for me. So, as mentioned, uh, we are going to develop those ethical guidelines in the next 12 months. Uh, as one of the use case groups uh, Caroline mentioned within the European Blockchain Partnership, I hope if that is something of interest to you or those who are kind of uh, seeing us here in the live stream uh, that find you, who find that interesting, please reach out to us uh, if there is something you would like to contribute because that is a process that is uh, uh, certainly not an easy one. But as that is a kind of guideline framework that is needed to give orientation to the market, very similar to more law-like regulation, as Caroline has put it, or standards that help actually to safeguard your investments you're making today in NFT, in oracles, in wallets, in DLT systems, you want to make sure that that investment is actually not lost because next year or the year after, a regulator or the market move into a different direction and move away from what you have done. That's also the reason why we are active in standardization at an international level, and that is what Francis said, you know, kind of, uh, your scope is global, your, your time is real time, uh, uh, you, you have actually to, to meet these kind of requirements. We are also active at ISO level on blockchain standardization, and I guess around February 9th, so in a few days, the first standard on blockchain governance will be released. took me just four years uh, under Danish leadership uh, with up to 400 experts to work on that one. So I was also kind of smiling when Francis was talking about standardization, takes a long time, is needed, but uh, cumbersome. So we are getting to that point because the technology is, in, in the meanwhile, industry-grade and ready for application. The organizations around, not so much. One of the reasons why we do these kind of events is to kind of generate and disseminate knowledge on the topic, and that's why I'm so super happy and glad to have you all here at the European Blockchain Center at ITU. And now we have a break, so those who are kind of visiting us uh, online, they can stretch their legs through the miracles of streaming, and those who are physically here, there is some coffee outside. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Omen, and I would just add that, can you, yes you can. Um, I would just add that we will begin with a panel debate at uh, 3.30, with uh, Roman Beck again as the moderator, so please be back and in your seats by 3.30, so we can uh, begin then. Thank you very much. Enjoy your coffee.
sound on this microphone. I could. How wonderful. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope you're all uh, coffeeed up. And to those of you out there, uh, I hope you found some uh, beverages of choice uh, for yourself. Um, we will continue right away with the next item on today's program. And that will be a panel on uh, sustainable decentralized finance. We have three guests with three very different uh, perspectives on DeFi, and I am looking very much forward to hearing their take. So uh, please welcome uh, Mette Kanstrup-Petry uh, from the Danish National Bank, Jon Hasling Kyl from uh, Danish Financial Supervisory Authority. That's very difficult to say. I'll, I'll try again. Uh, I'm trying to be professional here. Danish Financial Supervisory Authority, there you go. And Mads Stolberg Larsen from the DeFi Startup Settlement. And to moderate the debate, please welcome back also Professor Roman Beck. Roman, the floor is yours. With Thank your you very much. Guests. Thanks a lot, kind of. And I really appreciate that we have such a fantastic panel here in our Blofeld setting. <laughs> yes. You know, so like in the lion's den. And thank you for being with us today and kind of uh, answering some questions or giving us our your, your reflections on what is sustainable DeFi, what is the role of regulation, what is the role of a central bank, how are startups suffering or benefiting from. So a couple of questions we are trying to put some light on in the next 30 minutes. Meta, obviously kind of as a central bank, as the name says, it's not decentral, right? It's a central bank. And we talk uh, all, uh, all day long about decentralized solutions and technology like blockchain that is conducted and used in a, in a distributed fashion. Can you tell us how you as a central bank deal with these kind of challenges from new technologies and how do you embrace this and take this into your innovation considerations? Yes, I can. Uh, thank you, Roman, for, uh, for inviting us here. I think it's a really interesting topic that we are very excited about. Um, Denmark is known for being very highly digital. We embrace it as households and then companies being very new solutions we take in very quickly. And that also counts for when we uh, look into payment solutions. Uh, for example, then uh, back in 2014, we implemented instant payments, uh, which was very uh, fast compared to our peers. We also have new innovative uh, solutions, like we have contactless payments, we have mobile phones which we can pay with, uh, and we are also one of the uh, people uh, who are twice as high on our use of cards, payment cards, compared to the EU average. So there is a foundation here in Denmark for uh, innovation and, and bringing that on. So when we hear blockchain coming in and affecting into the payment systems, we see that definitely as a very interesting feature. So how do we embrace it? Um, we have made a uh, digital task force. Uh, we have put in dedicated resources and have put it as a strategic initiative. Uh, we also um, work together with uh, our international peers. We have a Bank for International Settlements. Uh, they have an innovation hub, which we are active in, and one of my very good colleague, Hashim, who is also here, is, is going to uh, work together on that. Um, we work together with the ECB. And then we join in on these kinds of things, like this fantastic blockchain school, which is helping us with a case study, which we try to solve ourselves. So in that sense, that's the way we engage. We, we are very interested in the technology and what it can be used for. 
I think we are all happy to hear that you are actually, actually actively and actually look into these technologies because that is something I, I, I make no surprise here kind of when I'm saying that from a European blockchain center point of view, we like to hear that. <laughs> You want, we discussed in the preparation for that panel that you said, you know, a regulation is not a bug, a regulation is a feature, you know, this is a good thing. And obviously that is not necessarily what everybody would agree on or would immediately get. So when you say kind of regulation is a feature and not a bug, in the context of sustainable DeFi, what do you really mean by that? And how do you see your role as a regulator in hopefully in propelling, accelerating the development of a blockchain industry here in Denmark? Sure. Um, coming from the, regulator, the regulatory side, um, <coughs> if I shouldn't think that regulation is a feature, I don't know who should, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and probably I, I think it, it's, it's more than just a feature. I think it's, 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 it's essential uh, for, so to say, for sustainable DeFi. And by sustainable, I mean first of your piece for the people. Right? For, for DeFi to be sort of useful to the society or people as a whole, you, ha you need to have it regulated. And, and that's for, for, for two reasons. First one is that I think you say 99.9% .9 of the population, they don't care what infrastructure their financial products run on, right? They, they don't care, they don't know, all they need to know is that it works. And if something goes wrong, no matter how unlikely it is, they're covered, right? Um, you, you have someone you can call. If someone breaks into your bank, you can get your money back. You need to figure out the same safeguards on blockchain, otherwise you will never get widespread adoption, right? You need to have consumers protected. That's sort of the first one. The second one is, and that's sort of my understanding from, from working with established financial institutions, is no one's going to embark on a new technology such as blockchain as long as there are regulatory uncertainty. So we sort of need to get that fixed in order for them to, uh, to, to, to get there. Um, and I think often, uh, when I talk to sort of the DeFi crowd, and I'm sorry if I'm lumping you all together here, but they, they always say, oh, but you can just verify the code yourself, right? Or trust the code or whatever. And, and that's just not going to work in, in, in the world that we are living in, right? Where, where sort of compliance rules in financial institutions, we need to sort of have a, a firm uh, regulatory framework in place and, and one that ensures that sort of the average user, the average business has uh, something that is as good as, uh, as what they have today. And then we can build efficiency on top of that. We can build inefficiency kind of mess as a, I still can say startup, I guess, uh, a settlement uh, mess. You enjoyed the feature. <laughs> you, you, you went through the regulatory sandbox. So what is your experience with, from the other side, from the recipient side, with that process? And, and how would you characterize uh, um, the process? Yeah, uh, great question. And thank you so much for, for inviting me here today to discuss exactly that. I uh, think the big, big difficulty when you're a startup, especially when you're starting out, is matching novel technology with existing regulation. That has been the really, really hard thing uh, to do here. Um, I think the summary that we had through this process was best made by uh, one of my, my co-founders who, who said, zero fucks given, someone needs to be liable as kind of the, the, the pro position that that you have from a regulatory standpoint where in the setup you have, someone needs to be liable if that liability lies with the users. That just needs to be extremely explicit. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, liability is not something that goes away just because you use decentralized uh, finance. On the contrary, like you're saying, all of a sudden you might put that onto the users and uh, that might not fly with the, with the existing regulation that, uh, that we have. 
So definitely, regulation is a is a feature, uh, not a bug, in order to to protect. You don't it. say that because the regulator is sitting <laughs> next to you. I'm not it's, saying it's that okay, because the okay. regulator is here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know Jon has said uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, regulation is your best friend. I'm not sure. I, you can I, be honest with us. I agree with that. In uh, our Blofeld campfire <laughs> setting yeah. here. Um, but um, it's definitely a, a feature. I think if you look at the cryptocurrency markets, uh, every type of fraud you can imagine has been tried and tested in the crypto markets. Mm. Um, so there's a reason why we have uh, regulators, and, and that is to protect consumers and, and businesses. Mas, we, we, we didn't talk what you're actually doing, but kind of what is your approach to and your view on sustainable DeFi? So how would you characterize what, what you are doing as a new, new next generation, whatever you, you consider yourself? Yes. Kind of sustainable <laughs> DeFi. What is your claim to fame? Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, next generation. And uh, what we do is business-to-business -business payments. Uh, at its core, uh, two businesses, they trade with each other. There's a payment going through. That is what we are helping to, uh, to facilitate in a new way. Um, with respect to sustainability, from day one, we've had a focus on sustainability development target uh, 9.3, which is about financial supply chain inclusion. So if you look globally and look at cross-border trade, then there are lots of companies who don't uh, enjoy the same opportunities as, as we do here in Denmark. Obviously, we are from Denmark. That's where we're starting. We're in the EU. That is really where we're starting. But, but the goal is definitely, once we can start to do interregional transfers, the way that we envision it to be, I think we will have made the world a lot more efficient, but also more inclusive uh, place. Now, we learned from Mass and Settlement that they went through the regulatory sandbox and they survived. Uh, they are <laughs> still here uh, and some of their experiences. But, Jon, when, when you look into, from your point of view, the experiences you've made with companies like Settlement mm -hmm. and others, kind of how do you adjust your regulatory sandbox? What is the regulatory sandbox? And I'm pretty sure we have a couple of startups and fintechs sure. or uh, students here in the room and on the live stream who may consider kind of building their own company mm -hmm. and they would burn to hear. I would love to hear uh, what is the regulatory sandbox and what are you doing smarter than maybe the other regulators in Europe where you could also go to? Where you could also go, sure. Um, maybe for, it's, a, it's a regulatory sandbox. And, and I think that's the first point of emphasis, right? Uh, when I talk to, to, to people from an IT background, when I say a sandbox, they envisage sort of a big box of data. We don't have that, unfortunately. What we do have is a way um, to, what we think is an easier and smoother way to sort of sort out the regulatory side of your business model. Um, so what we're offering <coughs> at the FSA um, is if you're coming to such as mass settlement, a new startup, you're building something on a new technology or a new business model or a new way of doing something that has been done before maybe, but you're doing it in a new way. So there are regulatory uncertainties. Am I allowed to do this? If I am, how do I then adopt to the rules? Because maybe I don't fit in. Uh, like I have a toddler at home, we have one of this, you know, these boxes with round pegs and square pegs and fit them in and that's sort of what we're doing, right? Uh, he, he, he comes with a a solution built in DeFi, um, how does that fit into a payments framework mm -hmm. that is sort of by conception built around centralized um, providers, right? So, so th that's what we're doing um, and, and working through and, and hopefully something good comes out in the end. Uh, yes. I, I think that happened here because, I mean, that, that's sort of the first lesson, right? And I don't, I'm not, I don't know if I'm doing you a disservice now, but I think we've we sort of shown that something that is, at least in, in my opinion, not sort of non-DeFi, solution that you built, where there's a company that's liable towards an end user, can be built on top of a DeFi infrastructure, the blockchain, and it works, it appears. 
it, it's efficient. I think that's uh, interesting, at least from a regulatory perspective. I'm not sure that has been, been done by any of my, my peers in, in Europe so far. So, so that's definitely a lesson. And I think the second lesson is, let's come back to your point, I think this is sort of the way to approach it. Mm -hmm. um, we, we can't just sit in our ivory tower as the regulator, whether that's in Copenhagen or Frankfurt, Paris or whatever, right? And, and just think that we can sort of un understand and grasp every new thing. We have to actually go out and look at it um, so that we know what it is. And, and, and I think we wouldn't have been able to, to come up with the guidance we now provided on, on blockchain as an infrastructure for payments if we haven't been able to look at it with, with the mass and settlement. Um, so, so that's sort of the second one. The third one is now that, uh, of course, they have had some benefits from it. We have obtained some new knowledge. And now the, the last thing is that we can give that back to sort of the, the, the DeFi market as a whole and say, this is where we're at now. Uh, if you have something similar or you want to build upon it or levy that, then please reach out to us and, and then maybe we can expand upon it because there are still so many things within this area that we need to look, uh, look further into. Yeah. And if yeah. I may add something there, what is so nice about that approach is also that uh, it's towards all of Europe. And I think that's what, what is very, very nice about European financial regulation is that it is to some <laughs> degree, we can still discuss whether or not that works for, for all the regulators, all the yeah. central banks. I think you will have yeah. definitely more knowledge on you know, what's the ups and downs internally in Europe. Um, but at least compared to some other markets out there in the world, it's a fairly coherent region, yeah. uh, which is a big, big advantage when you're building yeah. fintech. And, and, yeah. and that's what you've seen the past couple yeah. of years. Before I have my next question, kind of, I would like to kind of let you know that we will open the discussion in a moment and you can have questions. So if you have questions, kind of, you know, have time to think about that, and then we will open uh, the question to the audience. But um, we, we talked about this in the, in the preparation call we had, that uh, as you have access to the European market, if once you have been licensed, mm. you know, by one regulator in Denmark, in, by the Bafin in Germany or whatsoever, uh, you have access to the European market. Does that mean there is something like a, a beauty contest among regulators to attract fintech, e-finance, mm. e-fi companies, because it could be a competitive advantage <laughs> to, to be more forthcoming than uh, maybe other regulators no, for a country? No, I, I wouldn't put it that way. No, I, I think there are, there are different uh, approaches to sort of obtaining the same goal. I think for, for, for us in the Danish regulator, uh, I sort of say, uh, our approach is, is, is twofold, right? Um, uh, we have our, a sandbox and all our fintech initiatives, which actually is, is a little wider than just a sandbox, but, but I'll just leave it at the sandbox. Is we, we want to sort of support financial entrepreneurship in general, and we can do that through uh, making the regulatory clarifications easier. Um, and that's something that's good for them. It's, it, it, it makes it, you know, Denmark a better place to, to, to start your, your, your fintech. But, but on the other hand, it, it's also sort of a way for us to obtain knowledge in a way that we always couldn't do it. Um, because right now, when Mass is, is doing his blockchain, that's fine, it's still small. So when Danske Bank comes in a few years and wants to do the same, then we're sort of prepared, we've obtained the knowledge. Mm. So, so it also sort of allows us to plan our supervisory activities in the future by gaining that knowledge mm. now. So, so it's, I don't think it's a beauty content, but it's just sort of our way of approaching new technology, which is probably a little bit of a Danish way. We like openness and dialogue here in Denmark, which is, um, without pointing fingers at anyone, um, a little different from, from what I experienced from my, my colleagues south of the border. 
Yeah. <laughs> and of course, not doing any kind of hidden advertisement here. There's Danske Bank, but also Nordea and Jyske Bank and other banks. All right. Right. So, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> and we hope that they are all coming forward uh, with, with their own solutions. I know that your area as National Bank is a completely different area than what Jon is uh, concerned about. You know, you are about price stability and the peg against the euro and liquidity in the market. And therefore, you could say this is not necessarily your playing field, your, your cup of tea. But uh, in the light of DeFi and decentralization and also the potentials of blockchain, and also we saw the presentation from Francis Gross who said, you know, technology goes up and control is sort of sticking behind and the, these are my words, uh, that uh, the tech neutrality um, is a bit of a, an illusion that you are, you know, you of course react to technological changes and technology is changing institutions of all kinds. How do you actually kind of see the, the, the role of a central bank and how you actually aim for a decentralized financial system, if you do so? Well, first of all, I, I, I just want to say that I think it's completely cool what you're doing on the sandbox. <laughs> I think it's a great initiative and, it, you know, it's, it's a, I'm very impressed. So uh, just, and also I read what you posted yesterday. Um, on, on, so if anyone wants to read more, I can just advertise that there's a whole lot of things to read on this sandbox uh, initiative. Uh, but um, so, so why is it interesting sort of more uh, locally for us on, as a central bank? It's because it will impact uh, some of our core functions, uh, financial stability and the way we, we uh, pay, which are you know, core areas which we work with. Um, and it gives us uh, some opportunities within that field as well, as well as some risks. So if we look into some of the opportunities, you know, maybe blockchain can help us to make better cross-border payments. That's one of the areas today where, which is not, you know, really optimal. Uh, maybe it can help us on uh, know your customer processes, or maybe it can go faster on this cross-border payments. Um, I think also the case which we have uh, taken here today on how to uh, get data together and how to redistribute it is one of the things. Policy is often driven by data. So when you can get data, big data amounts, and you can work with it and make a foundation for your policy, it's really valuable. But you also need to redistribute it so other people can see it as well. I think also if we look into the financial sector, um, like data is gold. Uh, if you have a cyber attack and you lose your data, you know, that's you know, a huge problem. You can buy a new computer, but maybe your data is lost. Uh, so is there any possibilities that blockchain can help us enhance uh, data protection and maybe also the ability to recover? So out there, there's you know, a lot of opportunities to grab. There's also risks, and I think that's what we as an authority also is uh, targeting. You know, can, uh, if you make crypto currency, you know, crypto assets or, or stable coins, can they destabilize the financial stability? Can it take out the liquidity of the money market? Can it change how the uh, financial sector is functioning? Uh, so all these kinds of risks we have to look into and find, you know, what way can we go uh, forward? Yeah. Um, so that's why we, on a systemic level, is looking into this and, and what kind of aspects yes. uh, blockchain will bring us, because it will come upon us. So we have to, we have to uh, 
be ready and, and work with it. That reminds me that there has been a data leakage some years ago at the ECB and we still don't know what kind of information was stolen. Um, <laughs> that is of course something that is critical and hopefully blockchain can, can be a contribution to that. Uh, I'm looking into the audience and I'm also looking for the, uh, the clock now, which is in my back, which is always nice, you know. You're trying to be on track but then you don't see the clock. Uh, that's not really working kind of. Are there any questions from the audience? Don't be shy. This is your opportunity. There's a gentleman in the back, and we have a raising ha raised hand over there. And I'm just stepping up uh, to, uh, to step in and help you with, uh, with the audiences. So, because perhaps you'd like to ask a question of Foreman as well, but I would suggest using the opportunity to talk to our three panel guests here, of course. So please, uh, and let us know who you are before you ask your question, please. I don't know where we start. Yes, there, please. Uh, I'm Jens, head of product at uh, Januar, also a startup company. Uh, we do payments for cryptocurrency businesses, and I had a question about the digitalization. You said Denmark was ahead with digitalization. You mentioned the high adoption rate of card payments, which I think is quite an expensive way to do payments. I'm kind of wondering, how are you looking at how it is really like with the adoption, not just central bank digital currencies and all of that, but also traditional finance with open banking, for example, where Denmark is lagging behind quite strongly compared to Sweden or the Netherlands? Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's true. What, what I'm thinking of is more like when you as an individual and a household and as a company are very uh, ready to adopt new technology. Uh, and I think we are quite in front. If you look at how many of our uh, social services is digitalized, you can now be uh, you know, divorced maybe digitally, you know, so there's, there's a lot of uh, things which are on the digital platform where you, uh, in Denmark, has those opportunities. If you go to US or other places, you won't find those. So that was what I meant with the uh, digitalization. Thank you very much. And we have another question uh, right up there at the back. What, what is the uh, central bank and uh, I, I think maybe I should take that one. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll leave that to you. To I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't have much of an opinion here now. <laughs> well, um, th there is a, a, a discussion on CBDC. Um, there's, and, and there's several aspects on it, but maybe let me just mention two. I think the first thing is that a CBDC does not have to be blockchain-based. So, you know, it might be blockchain-based, it might not be. So that's one of the first aspects. The, the second aspect, um, and there's more, but let me just point the second aspect is that um, if you make a CBDC, households will have a claim on the central bank. They will more or less directly or indirectly have an account with the central bank. And I cannot see the purpose of that. You know, um, you will have a parallel account with the central bank as you do with your own bank. And you can shift money from one account to another, and you can do that very quickly. That can make you bank runs. Um, it can also uh, you know, affect how the system is working, uh, how you get liquidity around into the system because you pull out. Um, the money market might have a problem that you, know, you put your account into the central bank and don't have it in the money market. So this is just one of the aspects which uh, 
where you know we don't see it as a clear case or a, a great business of it or opportunity uh, to go that way for now uh, we we um, at present you know that's that's our view and and we're very interested in the discussion we follow our, our colleagues uh, who is doing a lot of uh, work on this and we we uh, look into it as well and then we evaluate the pros and the cons Thank you very much. Uh, I saw we had one question here, so let's begin in row, no, down here. We'll begin down here. This gentleman had his hand up first, I'm, sh I'm pretty sure. So this will be a complicated maneuver, but I'm sure you can, <laughs> you can accomplish that as well. There you go. And uh, tell us who you are before you ask your question, please. My name is James Harty from the Copenhagen School of Design and Technology. My question is to Mans with relation to B2B and smart contracts. Now, we can all see the positives and the potential of smart contracts, but what do you do when you have a player who doesn't want to pay? Who, who doesn't want to? Who doesn't want to pay. You deliver windows on site, you can prove they're there, and now you want your payment, and a Donald Trump-like figure says that's too much, or you're not getting that for three months, and so you're yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. then, then you're moving, yes. then you're moving into a, 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 a fork, Yes, uh, great question, very important question. Uh, it <laughs> was also one of the first things we addressed uh, as part of the FT Lab program. Um, the control of the funds is completely up to the buyer. So it, in that sense, it is similar to how it works today. Unless the buyer puts these funds into some form of escrow contract, which for the record, we don't have any implementation, just saying it for the FSA's <laughs> sake here. Um, but if we want to do that, um, then, of course, the, the, the buyer has signed some contract that is legally binding where the funds are moved into escrow. Then the buyer can't do anything. But for the situation we have today, the buyer is in full control over those funds. If they don't want to pay, that's an issue between the supplier and the buyer. That's not s something we, we get mixed into. Okay. And we have another uh, question ready up there. My name is Cyril. I'm the founder of Enershare. We're a startup. Uh, which is trying to tokenize sustainable energy assets. And the question is about um, tokenizing real-world assets, basically. Is there any regulation in Denmark already about this? Uh, I know that in Switzerland especially, they are focusing on, on regulating uh, assets that are already tokenized. And I wanted to, to hear your, your take on that. Um, on, could you, on, on whether there are regulation on tokenization of any real-world asset? Physical, physical assets that exist. Uh, that, uh, that would, it, I think it's difficult to give a clear answer on. It'll depend on a number of issues, sort of what type of asset it is, and, and sort of what the token is used for. Uh, whether could it, I mean, could it be made similar to a financial instrument? Then yes, we will have financial regulation. Um, this is, uh, wouldn't advise it. No. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying. It, I think it, it is, it's. Um, maybe you should. Um, reach out afterwards and, and I mean if you have specific questions on I think that probably be easier to, to take it that way around. And that is the beauty of being here in person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just direct, to have to invitation there for, for interaction afterwards. I think we have uh, time for one very brief question if there is one. If not, that doesn't seem to be, well, a very brief question. Always people in the middle of the <laughs> rows. Why is that? People who are super interested, they Pick a seat in the middle because you <laughs> want to see everything, and those are the people who are asked the questions as well. Yeah, hello. My name is Etten Heuskow. I'm with the Mangrove 
DAO. And um, I'm very curious, it sounded like in the sandbox, sort of the thing that saved settlement is that you have a company where you can place liability, but with a DAO, that's, that's slightly difficult. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I think sort of the center of all regulation is that you need to hold someone liable, right? Otherwise, how will you sanction breaches of the law? And, and of course, with the DO, that makes that extremely difficult. And, and actually, specifically because of that, we, we with the, within the FSA, we're, we're in the process of establishing an, an expert group. We had uh, calls for nominees just before Christmas, and, and we're sort of just finalizing the establishment of the group that is going to look at that exact, uh, that exact issue, sort of uh, what do you do about these decentralized organizations and sort of how decentralized will it have to be until you can't sort of place liability somewhere. Um, so it's an interesting question. I don't have an answer right now. If we come back <coughs> next year, maybe I will. Yeah. <laughs> I take you by your words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> interesting you question, more research needed. Um, Final remarks, woman, please. Thank you, kind of back to me. Kind of, we agreed upon that the f last round should be you give us one punchline, you know, something you've written in stone, one sentence you wish that everybody who is sitting here and is listening to us on the stream is kind of taking away from this session, you know, or make it two sentences. Okay. But if you have some statement uh, to the world, uh, that is now the time for you to make it, and we, we start with mess. Yeah, happy to start. Um, we are one license approval away from unlocking the benefits of programmable money for regular businesses. That is a fantastic opening. Now it's <laughs> <laughs> well done. Now the competition, the heat that, is on. That, that, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the perfect segue for me because mine would be that we, we won't have sustainable DeFi until we have proper regulation. Nice. That's cool nice. as well, nice. actually. <laughs> And so then us as a central bank, maybe a little bit outlier on, on this one, but for us, it's not actually technology. What's it about? It's about whether it has a proper purpose, whether the solution is safe and secure, and that is under properly regulated. That will be the... the thank you very much to the three of you. <laughs> Meta, gentlemen, thank you for, for, thank for you your willingness to kind of be here today. I know this is not always easy for public sector agencies <laughs> to kind of be in, in such a format. The more we appreciate that you came today. Thank you very much. And we continue with our program in a in a short second as we have to do a bit of a change here of the stage. Thank you very much and we continue in 20 seconds. Another, yeah. one highlight after another. Kind of while we have a change in the stage behind. Yes, um, because if you can concentrate on me for just a second, um, what we have come to now is, um, you can't. I'm just gonna shut up for a second and let these guys run around. Okay, shut up for a second. Um, that was not polite. Please be quiet for just a second because I want to let you all know that this is the time that probably some of you have waited for during this whole uh, summit event, the Blockchain Winter School group presentations and we have three presentations and uh, we'll be giving out an award afterwards and when we have had uh, the three presentations we will open the voting that you can all participate in 
whether you're here or uh, out uh, on the watching the stream, we'll open the Slido site and the code is um, will be shown on screen when we're finished. So after the three presentations, you will help us find today's winner, uh, who will receive the award afterwards. And now um, I'm looking at these guys to see if we are ready-ish. There's just a bit of housekeeping still. This is where I should paddle. Sorry, I'm forgetting myself. You get a bit of quiet instead, which is nice as well. Have you ever heard the expression that AI is easy, but AV is hard? This is what we are experiencing right now. Perhaps we should say blockchain is easy, but AV is hard. I'm, I'm not making fun of these guys. They are working under extreme pressure. But what was just happening was pulling out the plug and trying to put it right back in to see if it works. No, no, I should have. I mean, <laughs> when, when we had the uh, blockchain uh, summit, uh, we didn't last year, but the year before that, we had the exact same situation. Uh, so I should, of course, have, have prepared jokes, but uh, I thought technology has, must have progressed in the uh, two, two years in between, but apparently it hasn't. So we'll try with another plug. And so, something happened. Hey, we have a presentation down here. You can't see it up there. I'm sure you can in a minute. Things are progressing, technology has advanced. And I'll remove this so it doesn't mess up your computer. Well, there you go. And do, does your group have a name or? Okay, go ahead then. Uh, the first group presentations, please give them a warm round of applause. Uh, that was the next uh, interesting challenge. Uh, we don't have audio on that. We had we had an extra microphone somewhere. There you go. Perfect. Yep. Here we go. Lovely. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is David, and I'm here today with Martin, uh, Killian, and Andrew, and we have been working on a use case for a better ocean. Uh, next slide. So what we're going to be taking you through today is like what is the actual problem a better ocean is facing. And then we're going to show you our blockchain solution and how that might be a good effective way to solve it. And then we're going to show you a demo of the project that we've been working on this entire week. And then we'll finish with some concluding remarks. So if you take to us to the next slide. So 
what's the problem? Let's say that we have an NGO called Save the Planet. One of their main issues is finding ways to get donations because that's the way that they can do social work. What is the issues of a donor today? Right now, there's increasing requirements for companies and donors to NGOs to actually be able to show what have what are their money going towards. They need to be able to comply with the CSR requirements and EU regulations on that point. So there's a mutual need for each other, but there's also a lack of trust because the NGOs, uh, the, the donors cannot necessarily trust the NGOs and likewise. So if you put us to the next slide. So the current situation is we have NGOs with a, a, a lack of uh, funding to actually, they have a hard time living up to the rising expectations of being able to like audit and show what they're actually doing but we also have donors which need to be able to comply with their own csr strategies and reporting on social impact and traditional revenue streams for ngos have been like advertisements and finding people in that regard and donors would also like to have like a platform where it's easier to actually browse and find ngos that are worth uh, donating to and this kind of brings us to the point that we are currently in a situation where there's a lack of transparency between these groups, there's lack of traceability, which is a rising concern, there's zero decentralization. If you have to do anything, any business with these people, you have to go directly to the NGO. And it's simply inefficient, reducing the amount of money that the NGOs have to actually do work. And the donors are going to have to do extra work to actually be able to do what they want to do. So if you take us to the next slide. That's where a better ocean comes in, because they can mediate between these two parties by actually applying a blockchain solution. So if you take us to the next. So why even use a blockchain solution? Well, we're in a situation where a shared database would be really required. There's people that want to actually audit and look into what the NGOs are doing, and that's a, a solution that you can actually come and do with blockchain right out of the box. And a good thing about it, since that what we want to employ is a public permissionless uh, blockchain solution is that a better ocean loses the central control. Like we need to be objective and transparent when we're working with these uh, companies and NGOs. And that's a thing that we can ensure this way. And that will alleviate some of the trust issues between the NGOs, donors and a better ocean. And also having like public transactions allows us to show the traceability and transparency, which is something that we're really needing. And again, having an objective immutable lock also helps us with looking at the data in hindsight and also applying it for future like data revision. So moving on, I'd like to pass it to Andrew who will talk to you a bit more. Thank you David for painting that very sad heartwarming story. Now basically with uh, this specific use case, ah sorry, basically with this specific use case what we're trying to achieve firstly is to develop a solution that is firstly a, a, a sustainable business model that both benefits the business, people, and the profit, as we've sort of highlighted in the earlier presentations. Now, the solution that we sort of came up with as a team comprised both of uh, a solution that exists outside of blockchain, basically being centralized and also being on blockchain decentralized. So, to give you an example, let's say we have this NGO Save a Planet. What they would need to do is sort of onboard onto this web-based system that uh, a better ocean would create. They would register on the system and a better ocean would conduct their 
verification process. And this is essentially allows for a better ocean to be sure that the NGO that's onboarded onto this tool is credible and that funds aren't being uh, sort of being sent to people that aren't actually trustworthy. Next, we'll have a donor who would then go onto this platform and basically browse around and see a list of verified NGOs who they can choose to donate their funds towards. Now, after the verification that, that's being done by Better Ocean, what happens next is a wallet would be created for the various uh, NGOs, including that of the, of the donor. Now, for simplicity of this uh, hackathon, what we did was abstract away the complexities that do come with the creation of various wallets for the various actors in this specific ecosystem. So we're assuming for now that each individual within this ecosystem already has their own digital wallet. Right, so the donor would then uh, choose a specific NGO, donate funds to this NGO, and what happens is a better ocean would receive a, a percentage fee that goes into their own wallets, while the remaining goes to the NGO, and the NGO now be able to make use of those funds and do um, social good outside in the real world. Now, we can't always trust that the NGOs actually do the work, hence why we need a proof of work, which isn't necessarily the consensus algorithm or mechanism, but instead is a, very, a validation process that basically allows the NGOs to be able to take pictures on a mobile, mobile device that a better ocean owns and basically verifying that the work has actually been done. And this consists of them having to take pictures, videos, etc., basically showing that they've done the work itself. So we can all trust that that's already been done, right? Now, where would this data actually lie? So what we thought as a team is we would make use of existing infrastructures such as uh, cloud providers to store the very uh, large files, data-intensive files, such as the media and the pictures, etc. And the reason for this is we realized throughout this hackathon is blockchain is quite um, restricted in some aspects. Sometimes it's actually too expensive to try and store all of this data-intensive information on the blockchain. And instead, what we would use blockchain for is to save metadata for the actual NGO events that's been done. Hence, we're making use of both blockchain to store metadata for the NGO and uh, a third-party cloud provider to basically store the rich media that's been sent from the NGOs. And then finally, once this information is stored on the blockchain and on the third party, the donors would be able to basically keep track of exactly where their funds have been going. There's a much clearer picture in terms of accountability. And finally, they can export this information as a form of a, a dashboard, which they can then basically go and brag about with their respective teams. Cool, thanks. Um, yeah, now we want to do a very, very quick demo because we're already a bit behind schedule. Um, yeah, here is the GitHub page. You can maybe check out later uh, if you have time. And uh, we wrote a smart contract for this application uh, in Solidity. Uh, so it's Ethereum-based. Uh, let's just uh, deploy this contract. Um, we're fully aware that this is kind of a limitation um, because, uh, yeah, currently, um, Transactions are quite expensive on Ethereum, um, but we plan to migrate that in the future. Or yeah, and first, uh, the first operation we have is whitelist an NGO account. We did this for account one now, so to say, and let's do this also for a second account. Yeah, account two. Those are our two donor accounts. 
and let's uh, next uh, create an account for each of these entities. You can't create the account apparently because we did it now with account three here and this wasn't whitelisted. So let's try it with account one. And again, you can create an account here and then you can also do this with a second account. Maybe let's this time use uh, five ether instead of 10 ether. And yeah, then we are uh, able to see these accounts very briefly. And we see we have two accounts uh, from this NGO address. One is worth 10 Ether, uh, one is worth five Ether, and the donor address is not yet filled because nobody donated to it. Um, let's donate. Next, we wanna donate some money. And this has already happened. We, uh, from account three this time, donated some money, uh, 10 Ether in our case. Let's say we, we feel special today and we always want to uh, also go for the other uh, charity today. And another error happened here. Uh, this is because we chose that you can always just donate the asked amount. I think this should be discussable, but let's uh, donate the five Ether here. And it works. So uh, yeah, next we can see here, um, this is like a little suite basically where you can see the money has been transferred from account uh, four uh, to uh, account uh, one here. So this is the donor which donated to these two charities and not all the money has been uh, received. This is because a better ocean takes a cut of 2% fee here in this case. So it gets uh, 0.2 ESA from the one contract and uh, 0.1 ESA from the other correct, uh, contract. And last, what we want to show you is the capability, very simple, of logging events. So let's log some events, just samples here. Uh, all from the first account and then we can look at these events here and sorry yeah sorry and we have our event log here and this will then point to a URL and yeah you have your yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And maybe it's just to get some finishing remarks, like what we wanted to try to do here also for a better ocean is not to become the next central authority to like validate all NGOs. Like the main point of this is actually to try and put more power back to the different organizations, the NGOs, but also the donors by reducing the amount of like uh, governance that a better ocean can do within this system and it is quite scalable already as it is right now and by migrating like the framework to an algorand for example or some other proof of stake model we could actually make this work now so that's some just some final remarks we've tried to simplify the process to solve the problem thank you Thank you very much. Um, that was that was great, and I love live demos, um, even if it was very small type, so it's difficult oh, to yes. follow along. But uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have understood anything anyway. But that, don't say that to anyone. Uh, thank you very much. Um, we will um, root for you, and for obviously for the next teams as well uh, after they've given their presentation. So thank you very much, uh, and let's get set up for uh, yeah. Give them a, a, a warm round of applause again. Let's hope uh, the second setup works just slightly easier. And, well, 
you got a preview of the uh, voting code, but you can't cast your vote just yet. Everyone's looking at me to just uh, say something, say something. Which, um, I'll just uh, start briefly. Which uh, use case are you looking into? Central Bank. Uh, Danish Central Bank. Okay, that'll be interesting. Will you do uh, live demos of stuff on their servers or no? <laughs> oh, oh, that's too bad. I was going to ask you to uh, move a bit of cash around, but we can talk about that later. Um, all right, you seem to be ready. Okay, the floor is yours. Thanks. So good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Anke Su, and I have with me Henrik, Nicolina, Suhanshu, and Saliso. Our group worked uh, with the team of the Danish National Bank, and our case was really interesting, challenging, and a bit tricky because we wanted to connect traditional finance, TradeFi, with uh, decentralized finance, DeFi, and that we would do for a centralized institution. So what was the task at hand? We, um, we would need to develop a DLT decentralized system spread across banks and public institutions. And this system should be able to collect the data and share the data that is needed to the relevant author uh, authorities. So why is this important? Um, as Meta said, data is gold and policies are based on data. So the Danish National Bank needs to ensure uh, stable prices and safe payments and ultimate, ultimately a financial stability. So when we look at the current flow um, that is in place for the reporting today, we see on the left-hand side the banks that need to uh, submit the credit data every three months to a central database called Fiona. This data is then masked um, so that nobody can read the identification number. And then it's um, being analyzed by the analysts of uh, the Danish National Bank. There's also a set of data that's going uh, out to external partners like the FSA. So what are the problems with this, with this flow? We first have a burden, a reporting burden for the banks. So they need every three months, they need to pull their data together, then push it to Fiona. And then this, the second problem is when it gets to the analyst, they see missing data, miss data that's not consistent, and they need to go back uh, to the banks um, to ensure data quality. And then we have a third problem you have a centralized system, it's a single point of failure, and plus you have the unmasked data going through uh, to the centralized system. So you have a question, you have an issue of data security. So we were glad to have the team on site, um, Julia and Hashim, and we talked a long time about the requirements to be clear, so we picked their brains. So the most important requirements is really to have real-time access to the data. And not only that, it needs to be rules based So the banks cannot see the data that is going through 
only the Danish National Bank can and the external authorities. Uh, we needed to ensure data security and of course we would need to see whether that's actually a benefit um, use case. So we actually ask ourselves, looking at those requirements, do we really need a blockchain? Hello, uh, so my name is Sudhanshu, a very easy name to pronounce. I'm sure of it. Okay, so I want you guys to do one thing. I want you to keep this question in your mind. I'll be answering that after one slide, but just keep this in the mind. Now, what we thought was, let's, it's, it's a hackathon, right? Let's try to approach this in a dual form. Let's try to approach this in a blockchain manner system, that is a DLT approach, and let's try to approach it in a non-DLT approach. Okay, because I think so, that's what we thought would give us the pros and cons of a DLT and a non-DLT system. So if we do not take a DLT system, this brilliant graphic shows that we can actually solve most of the most of the requirements and the problems that were given to us. So if we add like a normal front-end front GUI data input would be a basic web page that wouldn't require the banks to actually upload a file, but they would just require to then fill certain fields. Those fields would have validators. So essentially, if you don't put a specific amount of data, the page wouldn't take the input. The page will basically tell you, you have to fill this field, or I'm not going to take the input. So that's one thing. And the second component we, we thought was getting rid of the entire masking and un unmasking system and just using normal asymmetric encryption, which would basically cut down on the cost time and operation costs. So that was like one solution two solution actually we thought would be really good. Now comes to the most important part. The thing is, the answer to that question is, do we really need blockchain in this system? The simple answer is no, we don't. Because this can be done without the blockchain. It could uh, get more cost benefit analysis. It'll be good for the central bank. But it's a hackathon. We thought, you know what, we're gonna develop a blockchain solution. You know, what's the worst thing can happen? Personally, what I found out was really interesting because, see, right now, what the research academic the basic consensus is, you have decentralization here, and then you have centralization here. People think of it as a dichotomy. People think of it as black and white. We believed, we thought, we basically came to a realization, it's not simple as that. It's not black and white. We can actually find a common ground between decentralization and centralization. That's why we came upon a model that I'm pretty sure researchers have found it, but we, I like to call it as a centralized, decentralized financial system. So the model would, okay, this was, okay, so the model, yeah, I really like this model. So <laughs> the model will look some somewhere like this. So essentially we have the primary banks, then we have the central banks, and then we have the FSA as the, as the regulators, both of, which officials are present here. So essentially what the system will do will, okay, I'll start with the ground up very fast. It would be a permission blockchain that would run on uh, a proof of authority consensus protocol. And for this purpose, we found out by trial and execution that Algorand, sorry, Hyperledger. <laughs> Hyperledger Fabric is the best solution for this system, but this system is a skeletal system. This can be used for upcoming blockchain as well, which can have security solutions as well. The most important part is those wavy and straight lines, very technical terms. 
so the wavy lines are essentially subchannels in which the the nodes that are the authority nodes in this case that are the central bank and regulators like FSA those people will decide what is the information and who can view it because obviously if you take a banking system that is centralized they don't want everyone to see the information from every single bank that's just self-explanatory so that's why we thought that if we use sub-channels then the authority nodes they would have con complete control they'd be like okay you can't see this information but you can see that information that would be really great for them and you have a public channel as well. So in the public channel, FSA, regulatory authorities, they can give good practices, good lessons, financial analysis that would be benefiting for almost all the actors in the system. So this is the system that we came up with. And these are basically one of the pros that could help the system because it would be proof of authority. It wouldn't be proof of uh, work. So you will cut down on operation costs. You'll cut down on operation time. But the important part is I, I personally think this is how we get into DeFi because DeFi is not something like, it's not going to be abrupt. It's not going to be completely decentralized. You start from a decentralized state you get central authorities on board and then you scale out and the system automatically becomes decentralized. So Salisu will talk about more in depth what are the pros and cons of the system. Yeah, thank you very much. Quite interesting. So um, like any other technology, I think it's important to highlight some of the pros and cons. Uh, but I mean, this is quite an interesting solution, decentralized, decentralized finance. And we think that this is going to be a transformation uh, because considering that this is a DLT versus conventional system, this is going to bring about massive changes. But again, it's going to be the issue of uh, GDPR. Uh, it could be challenged as to the right of uh, right to be forgotten, which uh, one of the speakers has talked about it. Uh, but I think uh, in terms of the benefits, we are talking about having a real data which is going to massively increase speed. Um, it's going to affect how data can actually be automated, which is going to reduce the reporting burden which the system currently is uh, really facing. And again, it's going to scale to other data elements and other, um, other data elements and across the institutions within the financial system. And this is something that is quite incredible looking at the system at the moment and how this can potentially um, affect the future of final, uh, financial system. Um, data resilience is also uh, an incredible opportunity by giving this particular a solution. Sustainability is absolutely essential here and my next slide is going to talk more about the sustainability aspect of it and we thought that from the people, profit and planet, in terms of the people is going to bring about reduction in reporting burden. Profit wise is going to save about 50% of credit re um, reporting costs which is quite massive and planet, guess what? is going to bring about energy efficiency because instead of managing or rather maintaining about five or six or more database, you are just having a one database. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the future of financial system is centralized, decentralized finance. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much. And group number three, please, uh, please get down here and get ready. Uh, I do like a, a good slogan myself. So uh, centralized, decentralized finance is uh, nonsensical and fantastic. I really like that. <clears throat> I just want to remind you to uh, get ready to log on to Slido when we are finished with the third and final presentation so you can cast your vote and we can find out who will be receiving the award uh, later. But it seems you are ready. So uh, group number three, please go right ahead and, uh, and pitch your idea. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think the microphone is on, so we will just get a bit of technical support. Yeah. All right, try again. Thank you. Sweet. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Elijah. This is Yinwin. This is Hannah, and this is Jasper. Ladies and gentlemen, we would like to introduce you to a new generation of NFT, of decentralized NFT social media platform, which is called ET. The problems that we're trying to solve uh, is a case study brought to us by eToro, and the, the biggest problem is regulation, our own regulation. Regulation, exorbitant fees, UI and UX that is not compatible, and the curation of different platforms. We aim to solve the problems through the platform called ET, a decentralized NFT social media platform. In order to do this, we'll need to achieve the following scenarios. We will need to create a platform that has a sleek UI, a sleek UI, almost like Instagram, and a platform that is, has KYC with Web 3.0 integration, because that's the world we're moving into, we'll also have to create a platform with cheaper fees, and as well as allowing for NFT auditing to make sure that there are no copycats or scams on the NFT platform, and gain mass adoption on our platform. And lastly, to make sure that there's transparency around copyrights that different NFTs produced. How do we achieve this? We first achieve this by creating a sleek design, looking like almost an Instagram type of NFT platform that will allow individuals and users to be able to scan through the platform, get feeds that are curated towards them. In the already existing NFT marketplaces right now, there's an exorbitant amount of content. All customers are drowning in the sea of content and not getting curated content to them. Through our platform and algorithm embedded in it, you'll get curated content and content that refers to you and you only. We'll then also be able to brag because NFTs are the new means of us bragging and getting clout in this industry. The second is the KYC in terms of regulations. As, as is known in different news articles, the crypto market is slowly and increasingly being forced to regulate. This means that the NFT market will soon be forced to do that. How we aim to achieve this is through using a KYC native ERC NFT or a whitelist token. Essentially how this will work is that once an individual applies to our platform to actually post an NFT or buy an NFT, they'll have to work through a consortium of KYC members they will then issue out a security hash. The security hash will then be given to show that these guys actually have an identity. This will then be turned into a token that will be in their wallet address. So when they do log into our, into our platform, the identity token will be listed in their wallet and we can verify that they're actually an existing um, individual. We will aim to use the ERC-1238 standard, which is a non-transferable NFT standard. In terms of fees, the current existing market 
service fees are between 2.5 and 15%. We aim to undercut this by pricing our service fees at 1.5%. This will allow for increased market adoption. By doing this, we're able to get market traction in a company in a business context. If you're trying to build a scalable company, you need um, traction. And lastly, we aim to launch an e-token, right? This token will allow for the trend that is happening amongst all the different other NFT tokens, the newer ones, like LookRare and SOS, to build hype and traction to get people aware of what we're trying to produce on our platform. But however, we want to add utility to our token so that not once everyone gets their token, then just go and sell it. The utility of our token will come in, allowing users who own this token to be able to reduce fees or build on other products where they can then get ad revenue and the likes. We will also then have uh, commercial licenses are truly embedded in our platform. So once you mint an NFT, as a creative, you know that what, kind, what type of licenses are embedded in your NFT, that's allowing the users to also know, or the buyers to know, what they're buying into. We're looking at commercial and non-commercial licenses that will look into you being able to change the art or not change the art on a commercial or non-commercial basis, stick to the art as it is, and you can sell it or not sell it, and then be able to change the different type of licenses as well. We're also aiming to build an NFT bot in the background. This will act as an auditing platform or auditing bot, similar to what happens with a lot of um, academic papers where you, where you submit on Turnitin. It checks that what you've written in your artwork or in your paper is not copied or written by someone else in terms of plagiarism. We want to build something of that nature for marketplaces so that we'll be able to scan our NFT on the different NFTs and that way we'll not have any more copycats. So the team is made of our backend boffin who is very strict on the blockchain will be built. Our legal eagle, who is consulted with the Estonian government. Our front-end fanatic, uh, who is really pedantic on how things look. And business strategies enthusiast, who has built several startups in the past. So, ladies and gentlemen, join us as we make ETA reality and allow individuals to have an out-of-this-world experience. To the moon we go. No, wait. To the stars. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, very inspiring, and I'm joining you on the trip to the stars. Thank you very much. Um, that was it. That was uh, the three presentations. Uh, thank you very much. Um, now it's time to vote. And uh, if I can get a bit of help, we will uh, show you the Slido address and code to, um, to cast your vote, please, for, for one of the three teams. And you can hit... Uh, go to sly.do uh, sly yep, and uh, punch in the code 948287 or just scan the uh, QR code, of course, and then cast your vote. And then in a couple of minutes, hopefully, we will have a result so that uh, Roman Beck can hand the award to the uh, lucky and all creative, capable, competent team. So please cast your votes. I won't, uh, because uh, I think that would be uh, unethical of me to participate since I've been uh, presenting the three teams. How do you vote? Good question. Um, there you go. That's probably the right. Right, can you cast your votes now? Okay, good. Go to the polls and, and cast your votes. Okay, it works. I'm getting yeses. People have cast their votes. 
everything is going. This is almost the last thing you want to see as a presenter. Everyone just going like this. <laughs> Hopefully because you are casting your votes. And is there anyone in this room who wanted to vote but hasn't? No. And I'm looking at you out there. Have you cast your votes? All right, good. Um, let's get the results then. And Jan, will you... Will you help us? Uh, and I think we'll just do it out in the open. Yes. Okay, we'll see the results. And there you go. Uh, team number one. Congratulations. And I think we should have uh, team number one. The let's, 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 as we have seen the surprise result already, Let's kind of start from the back okay. and have the, the team that uh, made it to a very honorable third kind of, or second run-up, kind of third place, kind of please come forward, which was team number, team number two. Team number two. Well, you had the best slogan. So uh, if they were handing out awards for best slogans, it would go to you. But very honorable third place. As Congratulations. we were not sure which team will win, we have uh, <laughs> one now, and we will have four more later, okay. right? Because the teams have different numbers of members. So you will be awarded with this fantastic award. It's a collectible, right? Kind of you can, you can, make, it a, a, can make a digital twin out of it. So thank you very much, and I give it to you representative for the whole team. Congratulations. Now we go to the first runner-up, the team that was... It's on the information here. Team number three. Team number three. Yep. Going to the sky, not today. To the stars. We have for the second place a different trophy. Yeah, the eToro and case. And same for you guys. We will make more. As we now know, we need four. But for now, and you get that later. Congratulations and all the best. And again, you know, I give it to you. And we enjoyed very much your presentation. And last but not least, the team that convinced the audience a better ocean, a better planet, a better life. Yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will make sure that you get three more. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Congratulations to you all. And can I just say, uh, looking at the percentages of the votes cast, it was a very close race. Yes. So I don't think you should feel bad um, for, for only coming in second or third. You were all almost uh, um, at the same percentage um, of the vote. So, so very well done, very well done indeed.
So uh, congratulations again to the winner and thanks for showing us uh, your work. In a couple of minutes, at least those here will be able to uh, have a laid back uh, reception and, and social gathering and networking and so on. Uh, for those of you watching the stream out there, I'm afraid you'll have to provide your own networking and, uh, and beverages or whatever you'd like to, to do out there when, when we are finished here. But I do hope uh, you all, whether you were here or, or joined us uh, through the stream, have enjoyed uh, the summit today and the program that you've uh, been able to join in on. Before we go to uh, the reception, and we are a bit early, but who cares uh, if we end up a bit early? I, d I don't think anyone uh, would hate me for doing that. Before we go to the reception, uh, I would like to pass the microphone back to Professor Roman Beck to, uh, to say the, the official thank you for today. So for me at least, uh, thank you for, for um, letting me be here and for joining in in, uh, in the summit again. Thank you very much, and, and Roman, please. And as always, thank you very much for your moderation. It's thank fantastic. You. I mean, it was already said, and it's kind of restating the obvious, kind of there are only winners uh, today. Kind of we have seen three teams. We had four more teams that have presented. A lot of kind of uh, good work has been done in the last couple of days. And it's a true privilege now for the fifth time to work with smart people, young talents, the next generation of blockchain drivers and enthusiasts. And uh, we are doing this since 2016. If it wasn't for Corona, that wasn't just the fifth. It would be kind of the sixth or seventh event of that kind. Uh, we believe that is important. It's about knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination. That's why we have a center, which is a bit of a paradox. We are a center and researching a decentralized technology. But as the name is indicating, the European Blockchain Center, we are a network more than a center. Uh, and therefore, I would also like to thank my colleagues from CBS, from Copenhagen University and the University of the Faroe Islands. We do research in network. We do teaching and education in a network to resemble the technology in a multidisciplinary public-private partnership to create value for society. Now you heard our full mission statement in the European Blockchain Center. We thank you for coming today in person. This is fantastic to stand in front of an audience again. Uh, but we also like to thank the people who are uh, following us on the stream. Indeed, uh, if everything goes right, and let's keep our fingers crossed, there will be some light refreshments outside for us. So there can we do some networking, and I would like to invite you to take advantage of that. Please stay tuned. You have seen a bit of a glimpse of our new uh, logo and new brand, and this will also be trademarked. So at some point, we have none done a, a proper launch of that one yet, but we thought we use this opportunity to use our new logo. Uh, stay tuned. The website is ebcc.eu for some reason, ebc. Uh, everything that is three-digit and ends with EU, there is a large organization in Europe that keeps the fingers on that one. So it's European Blockchain Competence Center, EBCC. If you would like to find more information about what we're doing, kind of that is where you will find it. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for your for trust in kind of people coming from South Africa, from Turkey, from Greece, from so many Switzerlands, from so many countries in difficult times, and our own students are on the home turf 
from Copenhagen. Thank you for coming, dear audience. Thank you for being with us today. And now kind of join us in celebrating a bit something that was a, a long week for us, but a very rewarding week for, for me. And I hope I see some nodding. Thank you. For, thank you for nodding, right? So uh, some, some other people at least see it the same way. Kind of thank you for being with us today and join us and have some, some uh, refreshments uh, outside. Thank you and take good care. Thank you.